Welcome to the Trapidemic Podcast. Uh, again. Uh, today's very first, fifth, 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 fifth episode, very first. Um, <coughs> with, excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still coughing. That's not good. With uh, the awesome Dr. Callum Cooper. Pull up his bio here. Just I'll take it from his Twitter. Now his Twitter at Callum E. Cooper. Uh, psychologist, thanatologist, parapsychologist, and author. He's a lecturer based at the University of Northampton, researching anomalous experiences, and he's a science promoter. A science promoter. <coughs> we get into why he has to make that distinction. In the, in the podcast and it's really cool we talk about all sorts of cool stuff parapsychology we explain what parapsychology is how parapsychology sits in, in in psychology as a discipline and in science as a discipline and some of the issues that he's had uh, he's trying to legitimise and argue for a legitimate parapsychology and, and stuff so uh, yeah I hope you enjoy the podcast and uh contact Cal on, on Twitter or me on Twitter at Alex P. Wilson and um, get involved enjoy <coughs> so how are you? <laughs> besides uh, getting stuck in traffic is it on there? yeah we're on it, did that audio go in? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> we got all of that yeah that could be awkward. Yeah, I'm I'm all good. The M1 is as busy as ever, and they're still doing their roadworks, and I have no idea when they're going to stop that. With that, I can't give you a proper traffic report, though, apart <laughs> from the fact that the M1, as usual at this time, is busy. Plus, I mean, depending on when this goes out, the traffic report will be outdated anyway. Yeah, well, given the M1, you can just keep on flicking back to old ones, and it's a good estimate, really, of what's World's happening. biggest car park, right? Yeah, pretty much, <laughs> yeah. And I had that once coming down here, and I think I got stuck on there. Johnny had that recently, but it took me about four and a half hours to get from Nottingham just to Leicester. And oh yeah, I, I won't tell that. you about the agony of needing a service station dead badly <laughs> at that moment, but I turned around and came back. I just thought this is useless, especially when it's your only main route to and from something. It's such an important kind of... That was a bomb scare, right? Close the M1. Oh, this was ages ago. Was this was a couple of years ago, and I was asked in just for a meeting that day, and I thought, oh, right, I'll come in. And then I realised it was the biggest waste of time. I could have just been on the telephone at home and said yeah. whatever I needed to say and got some other work done. So, Yeah, I've been stuck in traffic coming in to do some work, and then I just did the work in the car on the M1. Well, yeah, I, I, still. I, I had that because I got the handbrake. Home at the last one. Yeah, I had the handbrake on, so I, I just kept on reaching for a book and looking at stuff and... I just thought this is getting really annoying because people would inch forward and then everyone insist that you inch forward as well. So yeah. I've been in one where we got out and played football. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had a ball and that was hilarious. That's been quite famous for some celebrities doing that. Amy Winehouse got out of a car a few times, I think, and just had a cigarette by the roadside on a yeah. major motorway. You see all sorts of people. I always wonder that, actually, when I'm driving past like nice cars with the private number plate. Sugar, sugar one. Yeah, and sugar's in there. Based on the number plate, who it is. Mm. Like, I see, like, a UFC 6. I'm like, who's, who's that? Well, if you're at a standstill, go and have a peek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll go down well. Just tap, tap, hello. <laughs> so where are we? What are we doing? What's this room? Uh, this is a lab, but it's now my studio. <laughs> <laughs> I'm claiming it. Portable studio that you've driven in here on these wheelie tables. Yeah. I want stuff to put up, but... 
I mean, you're allowed to put stuff over. Well, at the moment, we're surrounded by pictures. I'm only ever familiar with this room for when we do Gansfeld. Um, but we use the other one more. Yeah. Yeah, so the, other one, the other one would be great for podcasts, but it's a bit dark and it's not big enough, really. So for those not familiar with that, the, we've got two Gansfeld labs in this department. And what we're looking at now are shields on the wall. So it's mainly for soundproofing, but they're partially electromagnetically shielded because the door isn't. On the other side of the building, we've got this big metal container like a shed fitted into Forsley. And that's the better room because whenever I've been doing studies recently with David where we've been trying to do this telepathy test from here to Nottingham when I'm in a flotation tank. Mm-hmm. If he's in there and I'm trying to call him to say that we've started or we've stopped, I can't get the call to him because he's got his phone in there and it's all shielded. Uh, so yeah. there's no way that outside signals can get in or out, which is really cool. I think you should explain Gansfeld because Chris Rowe does this a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes sense because he's talking to other psychologists who understand it. But generally, like all parapsychologists go, when we did the Gansfeld, when we did. and everyone in the room goes, yeah, mm-hmm. but there's always someone like, what? <laughs> Do you remember back when we were doing that EMDR study? <laughs> yeah, oh, how yeah, much we laughed. <laughs> it's just like it's like in education. Yeah. Well, I've described what the room's like, and it all came about for a number of reasons. In the 1950s, there was loads of psychologists looking at the impact of sensory deprivation on the human mind. And exploring consciousness, there's, there's been loads of psychologists that have complained. I think Peter Fenwick is among them, the uh, new, neuropsychiatrist that said that even when he was a student, he was shocked that the main psychology textbooks that they had didn't really discuss consciousness. Mm. And yet surely that is one of the biggest issues of psychology, that the fact that we have this self-awareness and where's it coming from and where does it go? We, we don't fully understand it. We just accept it is. And, and it's a combination of all kinds of things, biological structure and these electrical impulses in the brain that are firing back and forth. Um, but even so, we're, we're taking little stepping stones in the 1950s to understand why if you deprive the mind of these sensors, and there was all kinds of radical studies looking at people spending time in caves and deprived of sunlight. They were doing it in lab-based settings in medical facilities, and there was people like John Lilly that were looking into it. And he was one of the pioneers of the flotation tanks, where he wanted people floating and having the sense of being out of body. Mm. And uh, people were originally submerged as well, so they were under the water, and they had more or less a diving bell hat on as well and uh, they could breathe with that but he put epsom salt in the water eventually regulates it to body temperature so when you're in there and you're naked as well you, you just felt completely free which is why people had these perinatal experiences as well believing they're being reborn um and, and this kept developing and developing over time and he was mainly exploring what does it do to consciousness what kind of imagery do you get what does it do for people that are suffering from depression and anxiety And then loads of other studies came out, such as looking at, does this help people's creativity, um, sports and exercise, people focusing on Mm. a game that's coming up, and and all kinds of things. But with Gansfeld, um, that was a result of this sensory deprivation. And late 1960s, psychology was starting to publish its first papers on the Gansfeld procedure itself, which was being sat in one of the rooms that we're in now that I've described, these sort of contained rooms. And you'd have a, a reclining chair, and sometimes a blanket as well. They'd try and keep you warm in there. Mm. And you'd have um, a ping pong ball had been cut in two and they'd smooth off the edges so it's comfortable and they'd be taped over your eyes. And you'd still look through the ping pong balls. And then behind you, you've got two lamps there that have got red bulbs in. They tried a variety of colours. And blue was a really good one. You get that in a lot of flotation tanks to make you feel calm. It is a very mm. calming colour. Um, but in one of these rooms for a long period of time, it made people feel cold. So they switched yeah. to red. And whenever you've been lay on the beach with your eyes shut but in the direct line of the sun, 
um, you get this pink haze over your eyelid and it's very warming and the same goes from one of these bulbs which is that those bulbs are usually used behind fireplaces some of the older ones but we put those in the lamp so they do produce a nice little bit of warmth um, but this red glow and so people are looking through the ping pong balls they've got this pink haze because of it and they've got headphones on and listening to about 15 minutes of relaxation music so stretch your arms hold it from five, four, three, two, one. Relax your arms, relax everything. Your arms feel free, they're weightless. And it goes onto your, your legs and arching your spine and your neck. And mm. it does this just to try and make you feel as free as possible even though you're in a big reclining chair. Because you're in this procedure for an hour. And after that, um, you're told that you're gonna focus on something. You've been told more or less that someone's gonna be sending you something from somewhere, or you're trying to focus on a location somewhere in the earth. Uh, depending on whether you're doing a telepathy test or you're trying to remote view somewhere. So someone's sending you an image or you're trying to send your mind to a location yeah. and then you're listening to this pink noise. So it's like white noise. Um, I don't know if you remember with the old tellies when you had the AV channel and sometimes if you finished a video, it'd be horrible. It'd suddenly go yeah, yeah. and it'd make everyone jump because the volume would go up. So that's white noise, but pink noise is the same but with a reduced hiss. So it's not so um, intimidating to listen to. It's actually quite calming. It's very and after a few seconds you actually forget you're listening to it it's very good for clearing your mind I've even known of some psychologists listening to it in the car when they drive to work just to clear hardcore yeah just to, just <laughs> to clear their thoughts as well so that's what the Gansfeld is so within that time of listening to the pink noise any thoughts sounds visions that you have people yeah. are to say it out loud and the same goes for the tanks while they're floating in the tanks they'll be just saying out loud things that come to them so the tanks came about literally as sort of a byproduct of the science not it wasn't either way around it wasn't like oh look we can use this tank for science it came about yeah that way someone's trying to get in and someone is trying <laughs> to get in. trying to listen to who it is I think it's Chris should we pause what should we do uh, he might just be showing somebody no it's Drew I think this makes for a very interesting interview I think it's Drew trying to get in Who's he trying to show in? He can get five in here. He can get five in here? Yeah, apparently he can get five in here. <laughs> we, we're, we're doing dead air. That's, that's a radio faux pas. There's moments that we should give a running commentary. Someone is outside the room right now trying dead to get in. Dead air is great as long Ooh, as gone. it's not more than like a few seconds. When, <laughs> it's, when it's like four seconds, I always check my phone to see if it's not working anymore. Yeah. Because you know it pauses sometimes the podcast app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always check it's not buffering. When it's more than four seconds, you have to check, which is annoying. Yeah. but So th that's uh, annoying sometimes. Cause, so, again, we're in a Gansfeld lab, perception lab, whatever you want to call it. Perception lab because you and can... And the experiment lights on. And right? that's <laughs> the most annoying thing. There's a light outside this room as yeah. you're getting a radio show, uh, studio yeah. saying live on air now and you've got these red lights everywhere. There's a massive white glowing light above the door saying experiment in progress and two doors are locked from us to the corridor. Yeah, and that's still what my goal is to have my own space <laughs> so I can leave my stuff all set up I think you need to take one of these Gansfeld bulbs out just turn it on and put a, just a sticky note saying live on air now yeah, that's the closest you're going to get a little sign or something but yeah the goal is to have like a warehouse that would be cool mm -hmm. like a you know Rob Drydex fun factory um, I'm just thinking of fun house fantasy factory okay so Rob Drydex a skateboarder okay right and he had a show on MTV uh, he's an entrepreneur as well mm -hmm. he had a show on MTV uh, fantasy factory basically he has a warehouse and in it he built a foam pit 
uh, just anything he's interested in at that point, mm-hmm. he builds like go karts. Yeah. He just pisses about in the warehouse. Uh-huh. So I would just build stuff I'm interested in. Like a radio studio? Like a podcast studio. Ah. That'd be one hell of a podcast studio if it Not needs an entire warehouse. warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you could you could just have whatever. You can have yourself a little lab in there. Yeah. Build yourself whatever. I see that all the time, though. When Your I, I go, go past massive buildings, warehouses, yeah, derelict churches that, that say up for sale or something like that, and I think, you know, wouldn't that make a really good parapsychology department? If, they, you know, you won the lottery and you think, let's just pump the money in and, and yeah. somehow get something working here. I mean, you know eventually it'll dry up because where's the funding going to come That's from? That's the thing. <laughs> I mean, like, the monthly expense... I mean, yearly is what you're going to pay, like, 60k a year for the space. Mm. I mean, you've got to get that money somewhere and then you've got to pay the bills. Yeah. And then you've got to live if that's your entire job. The, the Society so for Psychical Research have got a good model. They've done really well because for a long time... that They've moved a building several times throughout London and London isn't cheap. No. And they were on Marlowe's Road for a long time. And it was just a corridor that went back to... Um, the secretary's office and then the main uh, library room, which was also the council meeting room. And they were so fortunate that one of the members um, left a, a big pocket of money to them after they died, which was the bookmaster fund. And so it just allowed them to do something that they couldn't have done so easily or at least not so quick um, where they were. So it allowed them to move property. Yeah. Uh, and now it's just a fantastic building still in Kensington area. And you've got a ground floor lecture room. You've got second floor meeting room and yeah. secretary's office and then top floors or library facilities as well now having a space is definitely good for mm. that sort of thing it sort of legitimizes you yeah and then it continue like that as well because yes they've got the bills and stuff like that but they they work really well with accountants they, they've got kind of a good amount of interest that comes in that sustains things you just gotta and break even. they've got about a thou- thousand members worldwide and that's yeah. that's what you need but this is also one of the things that you know good topic of today really in the fact that you talked about students coming in and, and getting a degree yeah. and, and thinking that this is their right and privilege to get a job as soon as they leave. There's loads of things within the process of getting a degree that you're seeing dying out now. One is buying books yeah. um, per module. They, they seem to fail to do that. And I remember when I did modules, I bought at least two that I knew were relevant per module. So I wouldn't have to make sure or rely that the library got them. They were mine. Yeah. And I could at least work off those if when I struggled to get anything else. But the other thing is joining memberships uh, to societies and foundations and all sorts. Even the British Psychological Society, there's so few students I'm seeing actually doing that. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't. Uh, I should have. Yeah, I didn't do no, that. I, didn't do it. I, I joined the SPR um, more or less when I joined um, the university and yeah. I've stayed a member ever since. And <laughs> that, that's kind of helped me because throughout that time, since 2007, to now 2017 I'm now a council member so I've risen through the ranks so quickly yeah. in all that time uh, but people fail to forget even though they're kind of welcoming the journals and magazines and the lecture days that these places produce if you don't join then that funding that's dries up yeah, if funny. you're enjoying what the output is then you've got to put something in as well if you want it to actually yeah. keep going this goes back to the whole the TV thing, yeah. TV license thing that and we're the t- content <laughs> providing you know that's even if you pay like I said in the podcast like 20p mm for per episode or whatever yeah i mean if two thousand people pay 20p they're on exactly you know, you, you're paying someone for the effort they're putting in mm-hmm. and if you don't like it then don't listen or don't pay or don't watch you know i mean that's perfectly fine. that's the that's the thing i mean if you have three television channels they better produce something that you like mm. which is why people can get miffed at the bbc yeah. But with YouTube, there's millions of videos. If you don't like it, don't watch it. You uh, can move on. There's, there's content. I guess I'm in an opposite position because I do pay a TV license, but I don't watch TV. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, every time I go on, I find nothing that I'm interested in. I yeah. think the, the only recent the thing actually, I pay mine and don't and don't watch. It's like <laughs> Blue, Blue Planet Two, and I've seen bits of it. Fascinating, really fascinating. I've got a really nice HD curved screen TV, really big, and. Uh, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is fantastic. But I'm never in the living room at the right time to actually sit down and watch yeah. it. I have to catch up all the time. If I'm catching up, I just use the internet. Or at least I should do it. I can do that on the telly as well. But yeah. I never catch TV programs at the time they're going to. There will always be both. I mm. think there will always be room for, like, the BBC. Because, you know, a YouTuber's not going to be able to make Blue Planet. Mm. Oh, exactly. It takes years to make that sort of thing. Massive production, all this experience. Yeah, what they were showing the other day, I just thought that's incredible. It was about, um, it was trying to get people to wake up to the reality of the coral reef bleaching. Yeah. And, and how it was dying off. And, you know, that we'll, we'll never see this again if this keeps happening. But then um, you think, well, that's it then. It, how does coral reef reproduce? And then it told you, it said that once a year on a particular full moon, it spores for mm. an hour. And, and that's it. And, and then it actually replants itself and it will grow again. But for them to have filmed that, you had to be in the right place at the right time. They, they missed it one year. And so they had yeah. to wait another year to get the cameras down there and actually catch the coral reef doing this. It's crazy. And, and when they make like the Arctic documentaries, the Arctic box, mm. I mean, you don't see those very often. No. They're in, the cameramen are out there for years yeah. just to get this. And they come back. 20 years older looking 20 years older mm. just for this this one little bit of footage you don't get that if you're just a guy with a HD camera yeah. sat in your bedroom making a YouTube <laughs> but then on the flip side is that you know it's you, you don't get that polished and I mean it in a bad way polished edited you know uh, people reading scripts you mm. get honest opinions it's well, difficult to be taken out of context if you talk for three hours you know that, that goes back to one of the points that I thought it would probably come up today, and that's uh, one of the things. So with for those that don't know, my, my interest and, and place here at the university is um, I'm a number of things. First and foremost, I'm a psychologist. I'm a chartered member of the British Psychological Society. All my qualifications are in psychology, and they've had different focuses within. Um, I lecture and module coordinate on parapsychology, so looking at anomalous human experiences that seem to be um, outside of current scientific paradigms. So we don't currently understand all their functions. We know some of the conventional explanations that might create the illusion of them, but in some cases it seems they don't apply. So this is everything from strange experiences people have, ghosts and psychic phenomena, to things that we might test in the lab, such as telepathy. Uh, and then beyond that, I specialise in thanatology, and today I'm lecturing on sexual behaviour this afternoon. Um, and one of the main gripes that we've had um, recently, and there's been more lectures on it, which is great because I think it needs more awareness bringing to it. So as you say about heavily scripting, is the media output for this stuff. Yeah. And, and it's gone hand in hand with the misleading stuff that's on the, the internet as well. I mean, th there's certain... Like most Haunted is an issue, isn't it, in parapsychology? Oh, like yeah. The ghost hunting. Not the actual doing ghost hunting, but the idea of, you know, is anybody there? <laughs> Show yourself, sort of a throw books at me or whatever. Yeah, like, <laughs> well, that was damaging to the science, isn't it? It, it created a 50-50 effect in a way. I mean, one, all it did was mislead in terms of this is how, if you were interested in people saying they'd had haunting experiences in this particular building, yeah. then it said that this is the way to do it. You take a camera crew, you take a medium, you take one parapsychologist and a load of gadgets and you wave them about. Yeah, uh, and we'll do it within 24 hours, then we'll have our answer. Yeah, my mum's my mom recently been going on these like ghost hunts and stuff. Um, and she said that, yeah, and there was a, a parapsychologist there. And I says, Mom, you talk to me, a parapsychologist there. And she went, no, it's just a guy with a bit of kit. 
<laughs> not a parapsychologist, just a guy who yeah. bought the kit and he's recording stuff. And obviously sometimes there are mm. parapsychologists there. I've he was just a guy, I and mean, he wasn't sceptical in any way. He was just sort of trying to prove something. Yeah. And that's a problem, I think. You can apply that to so many different scenarios. I remember that in The Vicar of Dibley when Alice said, uh, oh, yeah, I was a uh, painter once offered to paint me naked. And she said, oh, yeah, when was that? Well, he was doing our living room at the time. <laughs> or uh, people saying, oh, yeah, I'm a doctor. Are you? Well, n- not as such. I've watched every episode of ER, though. I'm really keen. <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's a, I think that's quite... It's not unique to parapsychology, but there's not too many disciplines where I brought, that happens. I know? brought it up recently in a, a publication I've sent off to the Journal of the Society for Psychical Research, and it, it was just me still going on about people's strange experiences with the telephone. Yeah. And the whole paper was on criticisms that were brought up in 1979 through to about 1982 of the research they did. Because people seemed to glance over what they were doing and didn't appreciate um, content analysis, which is a very standard method in social sciences for understanding what's going on in this particular experience in the broad perspective. So if if I take 100 of these types of experiences people are having, no matter what it is, it could be from any discipline of psychology, any real-world experience. If I take everyone's similar experience of it and I look at the content, what specific themes and features come out that are consistent mm-hmm. uh, and what can we make of them? So they did that. Uh, and there were all kinds of criticisms. And a couple of them were just people saying that these two people, Rogo and Bayless, loudly proclaimed to be parapsychologists. And I brought it up and I said, well, they've already been accepted as established people. But they're established because they were well-read. And they were members of the appropriate organizations yeah. and they wrote and they published. So their knowledge was no better than someone with a PhD anyway and um, because that's how they've gone into it. They weren't fakers that said, I've got the certificate yeah. off the internet. You, you can either be paper. one side or the other. You're either well-read and you just know your stuff and you don't need to go through that academic route or you choose to place yourself in academia and you go through the formal thing of getting yeah. the qualifications. Yeah, that's, both are knowledge tested, aren't they? Mm. And you, can, you can see. You can be an autodidact and still know everything about that. Yeah, so few you pe- don't need the piece of paper necessarily. No, a few people rarely kind of um, argued with Scott Rogo. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do. You look in some of the early journals whenever yeah. someone criticised something of his or he criticised them, and then they would reply, and he'd keep going. He, he'd publish in the correspondence section until they shut up. Yeah. And he'd, just keep, and he'd pick. If they got really picky, he'd get really picky as well, and he'd pick up on the kind of minutest of things and blow it out of proportion just to shut them off as well. That's what I always talk to students about when, when you know, the idea that the degree becomes a MOOC degree where you come and you get this piece of paper and that's what you pay your nine grand a year for. When the truth is, you can, goodwill hunting can happen. Mm. You can just get a library card and learn about psychology. Yeah. The difference is uh, you can sort of, throw yourself into academia when you're at a university you can throw yourself into listening to the people that actually write the books you're going to go and read yeah to the staff uh and other people other students you can throw yourself into that career and find something perhaps you wouldn't find in the library but you can the whole point is you come to read for a degree yeah not you don't just come and get spoon-fed what's happening you should say i read at University of Northampton, or yeah. wherever, not, you know, I've got my piece of paper from Northampton. Uh, I keep saying that to the students yeah. over and over again. Uh, and there's the some that, you know, it, it's, it's every university now. People keep on hearing these whispers. Staffs might hear whispers from students saying, oh, you know, yeah. I've never bought a book or needed to go to the library and stuff. And you're like, well, what's the quality of your essays actually like? Is it all internet reference based and stuff? And you're not actually showing your wider knowledge, you're scraping through. Yeah. Then if that's the case, then shame on you because you spent that money. And it will just show when it comes to your own employment afterwards, if you want to be a lecturer, 
it probably won't work out because no. it will show in the wash that you haven't got that knowledge base. You, Everyone that goes on University Challenge, I always kind of place a bet on the team that wins are those that when they go down the line, they say, I'm reading for geography and I'm reading for chemistry. Well, damn right you are because the assignment reading, yeah. that comes out will be based on your knowledge base, not what someone has thrown at you from the lecture. And, and we have to keep drilling this into students when it comes to the assignment and say, what should I be studying? You know, what, what are the main points for this question? And you say, well, in some of them, you know, you've got freedom to take it whatever yeah, direction we, you like, as long as in the first paragraph you tell us where you're going to take it. What we really want to see is beyond this lecture, what have you read, what do you know, and how can you sew that together to create an argument? And that, that art I'm seeing in places is slowly dying. Um, just because uh, it's not completely the, the students' fault, it's because the age of technology that we're getting into, where there's a lot of force and insistence through the media that we should rely on technology. I was in PC World and Comet yesterday looking at a new soundbar for my telly, and the young chap that was uh, trying to sell it to me, he was saying he got some like 52-inch TV screen in his conservatory just for gaming. Um, but then he said, uh, oh, do you, do you have Alexa? And I went, no. And he said, why not? I said, because I live in a cottage from the 1800s. It's full of books. I've got my nice widescreen telly if I want to watch TV and stuff. I don't need Alexa to order me a takeaway. I get my shoes on, I go out the door, and I go and walk to the takeaway. I'm not going to sit there. If we keep doing that, you'll eventually just be some sort of blob with thumbs that can text. That's the way that evolution is going. <coughs> you can use those those technologies, though, and still... You can use them to have more time to actually do stuff. Mm -hmm. So I mean, they are time-saving devices but the problem is if you're using them like that and you become a blob you're using them to save time to then do nothing with that time you yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's like the old watching tv if you ever think there's not enough hours in the day mm. stop watching tv yeah. and realize how quickly you get bored yeah you know there are enough hours to do stuff i mean look at how much you do yeah. how much you do like there's enough hours if you take on enough things, eventually you're going to run out. Uh, I need more self-discipline with that because even though my, my hours in a week run out and I need more time to write, I've got all kinds of writing projects. So I look at my diary and I'm like, but most of my day is actually spent traveling. And even yeah, though that's... I think, well, I've only got that meeting for an hour or something, and it's not just coming to Northampton, it's other places as well that I'm going about. I'm like, I either carry a bag full of books, which isn't going to do it justice. I need time sat in a library. Yeah. And I don't necessarily need the morning because I can't get into the headspace to write in the morning, get terrible writer's block. I need it to be nighttime. I need everyone to have gone to sleep. No one's emailing me. No one's calling on the phone. It's just me. And then I, I look at something that I've written. And I think, you know what, that's sounding interesting, but I can make that better. Yeah. And you start, I don't know why it's a nighttime thing, but I can start getting up, pulling books out, start piling them up and thinking they're all significant. Now I need to find out how they work together with my thoughts. And Are you more creative at night? Way more. All of my uh, PhD was written at nighttime just about I, I could hardly get anything done during the day if it's during the day i bleach the bathroom i clean the kitchen i go out and run errands yeah. I, I couldn't do anything during the day when i've got stuff to write um my car is clean my room is clean and the whole house <laughs> yeah. is clean because that's my procrastination of it oh no, but i must tidy first and yeah once everything's spotless and block the drains yeah. the drain pipes as well something's <laughs> got to be done windows let's clean the windows <laughs> scrub the roof something's got to be done but yeah, no, I, I I find myself more creative at night too. Although actually writing, I quite like to do in the morning. Yeah. Like really early in the morning. I can't do that. I have to sleep. I like uh, everyone else to be asleep. I appreciate it if I've got up early, done the school run or anything like that, and th that's fine because then the day to me does last longer. Like if I, I have a 9 a.m. lecture here, well, I, I've got up before 6 a.m. to actually get here, yeah, so my yeah. day just goes Day's on long. and on. The problem is when you do finally get in, you, you are knackered. You, you can't do anything. Yeah.
uh, is because not so much the fact you've been moving about, it's because you've been thinking throughout the day. You, you've had kind of this, this com- constant mental flow of spewing out your knowledge and delivering it to people and making it make sense. So your brain's constantly talking to your mouth and you're trying to articulate, and then between that you're getting admin stuff done, and you're switching from topic as well throughout the day, which I think is such a drain on the brain. Sometimes I've argued that sometimes that can be more strenuous than physical activity like going for a long workout at the gym. You've still got the will, but you haven't got the way power because the body's... Um, you know, exhausted. You, you've been working the muscles, but if you've destroyed the willpower, then there's definitely no way power. Yeah, that's that's the big. But even I mean, physically, like as a like a former athlete, but as former, you're still doing basketball. Yeah, yeah, but that's the um, that's the the difference between sort of those that are athletes and those that aren't is that when your body is tired, you have your men- your mental willpower is still there. You can force yourself to go and do that extra thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you realize it's not as bad as you thought it was going to be. So it's just conditioning in that way. You mm. just force yourself to continually do it. That's why they invented Lucas Aid. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're, when you're mentally tired, yeah, that's when your brain starts playing those tricks on you and saying, oh, you, you can do it tomorrow. Mm. Or we'll just work out extra hard tomorrow. Yeah. And you never do. You know, you, or I'll just play this one game. Or I'll just clean the house instead of doing my writing. Yeah. <clears throat> that's when the brain starts starts playing with you. Mm-hmm. And academia just kind of make you tired, doesn't it? Yeah, I've never got to the point of hallucinating, though. No. Just, no, not it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to some of the media stuff, what's your views on Wikipedia? I, I've had gripes with Wikipedia in the past couple of weeks, and it's really started to annoy, annoy me yet again. It's been a major what, like issue uh, for... Incorrect information? Yeah, in, in general. Where, where do you sit with with um, the fact that when you pick up your phone, someone says, oh, I don't know that, or when was such and such born? They instantly reach for their phone. If they Google something that's general information, that seems to be the their top go-to for information it's useful i mean i've used it to work out the meaning of certain words because uh, my vocabulary is okay Mm. i forget things i've been concussed too many times in my life i forget a lot but um (laughs) yeah cte is real Mm -hmm. It's, it's happening but um it's useful for definitions i use it for definitions but i wouldn't ever quote it yeah because i mean i could just go and change stuff people Mm -hmm. change like the comedians have their stuff changed all the time because the fans are just being funny. Yeah. So they change their who their wife is and yeah, their kids are other comedians. They just change shit all the time. R- Ronnie Barker had that. He died in six different ways before he had actually died, <laughs> yeah. and he kept on getting really upset that someone kept going on and doing that. Um, but when when it comes to stuff like that, those pages aren't necessarily policed like others. So those changes could be left on for days before anyone notices and changes them back. Yeah. The idea is great though, isn't it? That the community is going to that we can reach a general consensus of what things mean. Yeah. The problem is it doesn't account for trolls. People just having a laugh. With the general consensus, that does seem to be how Wikipedia works. And they say, if this is the majority view, then that's what sticks. It doesn't matter if the minority is correct or not. The majority view, even if it's wrong, is what it stays as. See, that when now you say it like that, that sounds dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the majority changes... The, the, the meaning of words all the time. Reminds me of but that. The dictionary sa- still says what the, the yeah, word really exactly. means. <laughs> Reminds me of that saying that um, <coughs> uh, a lie is still a lie even if everyone believes it, and the truth yeah. is still the truth even if no one believes it. And so what, I, I always think of Wikipedia in that sense. What's what's super wrong with Wikipedia then? What's well, on for for it? one, parapsychology. You're fighting with Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's loads of science uh, elements to it, but especially parapsychology because there's this um, gorilla. They call themselves a guerrilla skeptic movement. I don't like the term skeptic used for them. 
Um, because they're, they're cynics. I'm a skeptic. I question all the evidence and I'm not going to budge or boast about a wild theory until I'm happy that every conventional explanation has been pushed out of the way and we've actually seen something new. So the, but the most difference the, would be a cynic is skeptical. Someone who refuses to accept any change. The that they're, they're driven on their belief that nothing's going on. And so even if something comes along, they don't want to see it. That has a lot with famous skeptics, right? People who are oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't need to see the evidence. I know what's going on. Yeah, uh, and so, so you can even wave the actual research paper or the data under that, and they're like, I don't need to see so it. So you're skeptic of everything other than your own skepticism. So you're cynical about... You, you're not skeptical about yourself. You just know that you're right and that this thing is not. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. It's that kind of really adamant view, but they, they treat that as skepticism, and it really isn't. Cyn- cynic is to deny. Skeptic is to question, I think. I think that's the best way to word it. And mm. and with what's been going on, I mean, that was where part of the Bookmaster Fund went from. There's this now Encyclopedia. Okay. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I just let it go into sleep and it cut. Uh, let me write down what minute we're at. 31. And I will... <coughs> uh, well, I guess I don't need to actually address it because I just did. We're on again now. Hang on. But yeah, it's literally it just cut off like the last three words of what you said. I've got a wafer in my mouth. Hang on. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> That's going to listen well. <laughs> no, I don't hear people. <laughs> One pet hates hearing people do. Oh, you know, that happens a lot. Like podcasts, that's the people complain about the most when like guests. I don't like it. For anyone that's listening, I apologise if you heard me eat. I I can't stand it myself. I have to leave the room sometimes if people are eating too loudly. It shouldn't have picked it up. It should be okay. No, what I hear sometimes on radio shows as well is when people have got too much spit in their mouth. And and you can hear it in the. (laughs) I love hearing the whistles. When people (laughs) are speaking, it whistles in their teeth. My dad had a a teacher at his school that had that naturally with his, um, his speech. And so the kids would constantly whistle. And he'd get really frustrated, and the guy would go, "Stop that whistling, boy!" <laughs> was it Lee Evans took the Mickey out of that? He, he met loads of old women with like kind of dodgy false teeth, and yeah. they'd come into shop saying, "Excuse me, love, do you have any sesame seed soup?" Yeah, I, <laughs> I watched that special literally twenty, thirty times as a kid growing up. Yeah, Lee Evans was my favourite. Yeah, oh, he's brilliant. I like his piano playing as well. Yeah, Lee Evans was brilliant, and then that sort of got me into. American stand-up, which a lot of people don't like. I like Bill Hicks. He was he was brilliant, Bill Hicks. He, a lot was, of people, yeah, he, was, he was very well-read as well. I remember that thing where he, he said he took a book, books everywhere with him on tour and he'd sit in diners and stuff like that, proper trucker diners. A lot of the good comedians are. They're not mm. stupid. They're no. very intelligent. That's why they're that good. That's why they're that funny. I know there's a lot of people that follow Marilyn Manson as well because he's very high up in kind of sociology literature. He yeah. loves sociology. And some of his books have kind of touched on that quite a lot. Yeah, but that, I mean, that... An interesting point coming back to the students, people don't actually realise that those people that you follow in these certain areas mm. are well read. They they understand, and it's because they have this like mastery complex, I guess. Yeah. You want to learn new things and just constantly improve. You don't just want to be a consumer. That sucks. See, that's how I came about. I mean, I couldn't read properly until about 12 because I didn't like reading. I didn't see the point because there was nothing in books that interested me. So why should I need to? read anything the same attitude that kids have with algebra and stuff like that thinking well why do I need to learn this because I'm never going to use it and uh, as much as I kind of have people get on at me teachers and so forth about that it was when I went to the library and I I constantly go to the books that had the paranormal in and I realized in reading the books they were presenting a completely different view to what the media would often actually put out 
Yeah. And, and that's because the, the books tended to be written by those doing the research and those in the know and those that had also read and knew how this related to science and how to investigate it in a scientific capacity. So I forced myself to read to learn truth. And right. so that's the mo- I think that's kind of an important kind of thing that needs to hit home to many students. If you want to know truth, then you need to read. It's not just a question of Googling. Googling is going to give you a mixture of opinions and half-truths and lies. And there's there's always going to be lies in books and errors and so forth, but there's less in the books and the printed literature than there is online. Yeah, that's the, the process of peer review, isn't it? That's the idea mm. that, that you know, you're experts in the field, or at least experts in a field. Mm-hmm. Look at what you're doing and can critique your methods so you're not just mm-hmm. writing a blog post. So on the Wikipedia note, this is yes. this is why That's what we were talking about, we were talking about yeah. Wikipedia. So why why have I got gripes with that? So the SPR set up their own page, the Science Encyclopedia, that yeah. is edited by those in the know, the authorities of any given topic, and it can't be publicly edited. It, it's managed by um, a gentleman that runs the Science Encyclopedia, Robert McLuhan, and um, the entries are well researched and go up and if they need updating then they get updated by the authority no one can go on or control and they're trying to get it up through the Google rating so if people want to know something about parapsychology you've got a choice you either see Wikipedia there saying parapsychology is a pseudoscience or science encyclopedia saying parapsychology is a serious science and, and is actually giving you the truth whereas you cannot, you are not allowed to edit the Wikipedia posts relating to parapsychology. I've tried numerous times. My first experience of this was when I heard Robert McLuhan's kind of idea about in creating the science encyclopedia because of so many mistruths that were on Wikipedia and mm. deceiving the public. So we get a lot of parapsychology students that come and do the module here. And their first impression is, well, this is going to be a load of nonsense because from what I've read on the internet, it's a pseudoscience. And a pseudoscience is a, a science that is looking at things that have no thorough grounding, no evidential basis, and are probably using very dodgy methods. But and if you get, but it, surely, I mean, if you're getting, this is why I'm, I'm not a parapsychologist, but I'm an ally to parapsychology, I guess. If you're getting sig- significant results, so p-values less than 0.05, yeah. and your methodology is strong, you're getting something above chance. Mm-hmm. How can it be a pseudo? Oh, because they're saying that the people who've done it um, don't know their data right, or there's some sort of information leakage, and that's why you're so leading to a false it. result, <laughs> or you don't know. Well, this How is all. This is why the, the Science Encyclopedia also has created an open data policy. So from this point on, everyone is trying to sign up to every time you do a study, we submit open data. So you can so, have a look. Yeah, but the problem is this is the pushing water uphill element that all these people criticizing will never look. They will never read the paper in the first instance. They will never take the data and analyze it for themselves because they're following this cynic route where they say, it's not going on because I believe it's not because it's nonsense in the first place. You can doesn't exist. That's allowed, you're allowed to say that, but what you can't say, though... Support is it. Yeah, but you can't say the science isn't robust. Mm-hmm. Because from what I see, I'm the outside looking in, it is. Yeah. It does its best to... Uh, attempt to, it de- to be robust. It developed most of the methods we're using in social science today. The reason we're using p-values is because parapsychology was getting a bad name when Ryan was trying to publish in journals of abnormal psychology and they got ESP studies through into that and there was just a lot of criticism and some of the feedback was you've just got to do something that makes you more mainstream and scientific. So, so they they took on statistical science which was in its infancy and they got people at Duke University to get involved in the studies and help calculate the stats if they did something that could look at well what is beyond chance. And that's where eventually the Zeno cards developed your your star, your cross, your wavy line, your circle, your square. 
And, um, you know, you've got a one in five chance there. And so out of a pack of 25, you should get five out of 25 by chance. And they did this hundreds of times over. And the p-value they set, so Alex has just mentioned 0.05. That's a one in 20 chance. But Ryan was working with a standard p-value of 0.005, 1 in 200, and still beating it. And he eventually wrote all of this up into his book, Extracentric Perception, which came out in 1934 with the Boston Society for Psychic Research. It got disseminated to loads of different universities, more or less as like a cooking recipe. This is what we've done. If you don't believe us, just try it for yourself. I'm not saying one way or the other that psi exists, but by stats yeah. and how statistics work... Yeah, that's what something George's physicist in, isn't it? That statistically, there's something weird here. Mm-hmm. And so we've put all the controls in place. There's yeah. no cheating going on. There's no sensory leakage. So if it's not something that, weird is happening... And that's why I always say it warrants a look at, which is enough to qualify me as an ally, which is wrong. It shouldn't be. I shouldn't have to say mm-hmm. that. Well, the other side is people every day have all kinds of experiences and they don't always reach conventional explanations. Every day someone reports an account of telepathy, hearing a voice of someone who isn't there. Yeah. Sensing a presence that isn't there, having a vision of something before it happens, a deja vu, vu experience, all kinds of things. Or even through to the lucid dream experiences. Dreams are still kind of a remit of parapsychology because we don't understand what they are, where they come from, why we have them. Yeah. They, they are an anomalous process. They have a process. The brain is creating them somehow, but we don't understand the process. And I think this is the misleading thing about the term paranormal as well. Because people think, oh, paranormal, so something that shouldn't happen, but it does. Yeah, but we're not saying that that's how it always exists and it's just this mythical thing that comes about and people see ghosts and then they go away and we'll never understand them. No, we use the term anomalous to just say people have them. We just don't fully understand the processes involved. There's no universal explanation. But if we bother to research them and understand why, we will finally understand the mechanisms involved eventually. But there's so many things about psychology that's in its infancy. The hippocampus is just a vast area of the brain that's responsible for long-term memory and it just seems to be like a a room 101 of god knows what's in there but all sorts is in there and it seems to be responsible for a lot but what we don't fully know can parapsychology as a discipline get a bit too bogged down in in the stats so in proving that well i think it it ebbs and flows i mean um, there was a lot of spontaneous case research, so going out and looking at people's experiences of hauntings and apparitions in early psychical research. Then Ryan came along, mm-hmm. and it made a big shift to just lab-based studies, and it faded out some of the spontaneous case stuff. And I think in recent times it's had a boom again because we've started to, I think we've started to re-embrace qualitative research because we've done so much stats that it's overwhelming, and we're doing so much stats without understanding the experience and processes yeah, again. So I, I think we're now flowing into qualitative research again. We've even mentioned this with positive psychology that it's, it's very misleading for a lot of people that they think that the Journal of Positive Psychology is only interested in numbers just because it's not seeing many qualitative studies. I guess the truth is people just aren't just submitting. Yeah. yeah. And again, back to Wikipedia and, and why um, we've got these problems. So personal profiles. Ryan, again, go back to Ryan. Uh, that was my first experience. I went to his profile, said a load of nonsense, and eventually said... But Ryan's stuff was dismissed eventually because his statistics were discovered to be nonsense. And A, that wasn't true. And B, the references that are used are just interviews from noted cynics from so popular days. It it's a never battle between the science and the some idiot, Some idiots that are paid to sit there um, that will, within five minutes, change back what you put and then block you if you do it again. And, and so I tried it. And I, I couldn't believe the response. This is officially coming from Wikipedia, and I changed it back, and then it changed again, and then I changed it again, and I changed a few things. But it would have taken me a day to correct his biography, and I'm not a, 
a biographer of Ryan, but I certainly know some of the main information about him. And I got a message from Wikipedia, and they said, don't do that. And I said, but the information's wrong, and I'm an authority on this. And they said, well, who are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm a parapsychologist. This is my main job. I know this chap. He's a big figure in the field, and you've got information wrong. Their response before they deleted it was, nobody gives a fuck that you're the dog. If that's the majority view, that's the way it stays, regardless of whether the information is true or not. That's how Wikipedia operates. And then I've seen this. Uh, I gave up after that and heard about Robert Mc Cluan's problems with this and why he wanted an independent encyclopedia and then got really annoyed that people do generally use Wikipedia for this information I, I cannot be trusted I just never bother using it because I mean as you say a basic a definition for something yeah. no not for sciences though parapsychology has an inaccurate definition on there but for words if you want to understand the yeah, meaning yeah. of a word that's fine some really really basic stuff you'd hope to god that people haven't changed stuff like that and you can get something truthful out of it but it's last two weeks, I finally got my own profile on there when I was speaking to Dr. David Saunders about his research. And we were Googling how you could look at how many times someone had cited your research. Yeah. I didn't find my own research being cited. I just found instantly a profile for me on Wikipedia. Not a very big one, so I guess they're going to develop it over time with more crap. Um, but instantly I was referred to it as... say, like, villain of Wikipedia? Well, I just said, Callum, e oh, I wish it did. I should get some papers out on it so they could <laughs> cite it and then say, oh, it's nonsense, he's very unfounded. But so Callum E. Cooper, better known as Cal Cooper, is a parapsychologist, mentioned nothing about being, first and foremost, a psychologist or chartered with the BPS or a thanatologist. He's a parapsychologist and a pseudoscience promoter. Uh, wow. And I just thought, you... Bastards. Yeah, that is incredibly misleading. There's nothing I do in my contractor work or public work that involves promoting pseudoscience. I teach research methods, I promote the scientific method, the standards and methods that I use are beyond some of the other areas of social science as well to make sure that we've got what we're looking for, such as double blind testing or yeah, precognitive like targets as well. So, so the targets aren't even known by you know people involved. It's something that happens way after the test is done. Uh, and yet they say pseudoscience promoter. And these people won't want to contact you, interview you, actually find out what you do. Can you change your own profile? Or I, I tried to. Five minutes. I, I got blocked after three changes. I changed it to psychologist and science promoter. And they kept changing it back to parapsychologist and pseudoscience promoter. So, um, so it, it, to them you can't be, so not necessarily to Wikipedia as a company, but to whoever's changing it, you can't be a psychologist. And a parapsychologist. Because they believe parapsychology their is pseudoscience. Their response was, don't change something that's critical to something that's positive, or vice versa. And I said, just change it to cunt. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> they the, can't change it. I, I was just going to make up loads of stuff, because I even saw on, on some colleagues' um, Wikipedia pages, and I was surprised <coughs> no one noticed those, but uh, Kieran O'Keefe at Buckinghamshire New University, his said something like, uh, it, they listed a load of pets that he's got, like he's got a kangaroo and three hamsters, and I'm like, no, he hasn't. He said he got an MSc in pottery from Goldsmiths University. I'm like... This is nonsense. How do people not pick up on this? The most annoying thing was they, they mentioned the fact that I, my research is supported by the Alex Tannis Foundation. So they say, well, um, Cal is a promoter of Alex Tannis and um, kind of preaches that he's a, a genuine or was a genuine psychic. Mm. And, and then they mentioned the OBE studies they did with him at the American Society for Psychical Research, where he was trying to project his mind out of a room like this to another room to look through an optical illusion device where there was a spinning disc and it had four quadrants so he had to guess the quadrant right the color that it showed and the symbol that appeared and there was a mixture of different things that it could be so you got four quadrants i think there was four different colors and five different symbols mm. when this research came out in 1980 there was two responses in the journal in the correspondence section with 
talking about the importance of these. And Sue Blackmore was one of the respondents. And she said, weighing up your statistics, this only would reach chance. So nothing's going on here. It's not going out of the body. And they replied instantly and said, you've weighed up the statistics wrong because you're looking at whether he got all three right or not. We calculated every time he got three components right, quadrant, colour and symbol, every time he got two of those right and every time he got one of those right. And the full statistics were weighed up with that and it was significant. And she didn't reply, Mm. which suggested that she had no comeback to that. So that's on my Wikipedia profile, the fact that Sue Blackmore said that, but they don't publish the reply. All I had to do when I saw it was reach for a journal right in front of me, pull it off the shelf, turn to that page, said, there's her criticism. The very next page is their reply. And I just filled it in. I put a sentence saying, however, she never replied to the response, quoted it and put it in the reference section. They deleted it several times over and said, you can't make it positive. I'm like, but we that's... You did delete it. Yeah, yeah. The company. Well, there's a guy working for it. There's several editors that are close knit that are being paid because they're on it, you know, within five minutes, it'll be down. That If yeah. they're doing that in their spare time, God, are they committed um, and yeah, this is what Robert McClune's talking about with these guerrilla sceptic movements where some people are, are kind of like these personal admins, but they're also on there to make sure it doesn't read this correct information. And I just thought, what are you doing saying that, you know, that's not the correct response or it's not critical, you're making it positive. That's the truth. There's the study, there's a reply, there's the response. You can't just stop at the reply because that's what you're happy with. You have to give the whole picture here. That's a critical viewpoint. Saying there's the study, there's the response, there's the reply. It's the full picture. You're stopping it at the point that you're personally happy with it because it reaches a dead end or says that that's nonsense. Why is it okay to put negative stuff on? I don't know why. That well, they see it as a they see it as a positive because it's reaching a conclusion that nothing's going on, which is the viewpoint that they want to raise. Which is also it goes back to their their point that this is a pseudoscience. It's subjective though, isn't it supposed to be Wikipedia? If not not in this sense. It might be with other just areas, but. Us what's well, it's telling us who people are yeah. and what words are. Well, well, if you just go to my biography that's only like a few sentences long, it's only got a few sections, but I could point out at least six or seven things that are completely wrong. There's no way I could change it. I can change it, but it'll change back within five minutes. I'm not allowed to. I wonder how many are like that then? How many? Oh, loads. I mean, I think one of the other ones that was really big was Russell Targ, who's a physicist, and he spent 20 years of his career in laser technology, and that was on there. And when they discovered that he got such a big involvement in parapsychology, they deleted all of his life history about laser technology, so it just had the parapsychology stuff, which still they'd edited so it had dead ends in it, all saying, well, this cynic said that nothing was going on, so therefore nothing was. Never quoting the first-hand source. It would always be someone's later opinion on it. And he got in touch with them and said, you've, you've ruined my biography. That's not true. Um, can you change it back, please? And they said their response was more or less down the lines of, I think we know better. <laughs> than your own life. Th- than your own life, yeah. We know better. Th- is this is a, how it is. Why is there a war? I don't... Why is there a war? I, I think... That? I mean, there's been it's a lot a, of papers. It's a strange argument. It's a strange... I mean, it's like... I mean, Wikipedia covers everything, right? They yeah. Choose... Oh, their battle is with one discipline. I, I think it's just because of this cynic movement. I don't like calling the sceptic movement at all. Um, I think if we did have a sceptic... Is it just them, though, not necessarily Wikipedia, the company? Uh, is it just the cynics? Wikipedia are obviously supporting it because so many claims have been made against it, but their response... I mean, they may just kick up a larger fuss than... The uh, yeah, I mean, the there's community. loads of kind of... If people kick off, then that they start giving you links to legal routes and stuff like that, and their response is, if someone's changing it, you have to go to the talk forum or discussion forum and talk it out with the main editor which is usually the person not letting you. And if that's the case, because their mind is already made up, there's no point in starting a discussion to actually say, can you put the right information? Because they will not. I'm just trying it's to, a dead trying end. To think about how in control of that situation Wikipedia as a company is. Mm. 
uh, they were aware of it, but the, these are these independent it's editors independent. that. Yeah. Um, so it, it's been known as the Wikipedia War, and there's been several publications on that it. That would be a shame. Like for example, if I, if you created Wikipedia, mm-hmm. or like you were in charge of Wikipedia, it would be annoying that these sort of battles are going on. They're inevitable, though, aren't they? I mean, just look at Facebook or, or Twitter. Generally, but when Wikipedia someone shouldn't be the place for that. No, because but that's, that that's I what mean, Wikipedia happens is though. It's like supposed to be this massively useful tool, and it really is. It shouldn't be the place for these internal arguments. Mm. Twitter is the place for these wars. <laughs> but that's all it, an information is. forum, though, should be it, it shouldn't be a place for debate because if no, you allow, if you but it is because it's publicly edited. It's an editing forum, so if you sign on, you're allowed to go on and edit. But you might get overruled by the main editor of that page, which is what happens, especially for these parapsychology sections. I can't account for other sciences, but there must be other areas of sciences as well that suffer in the same way, where they're constantly having to re-educate the public because all they've known to this point is what the media have done, which is usually grossly edited, or what they've read on the internet. Isn't there a... Like, I would consider myself a sceptic. Isn't there a a giant proportion of parapsychologists that are sceptics? Oh, yeah. Um, Isn't that the point of making Yeah, this, but that's, that's why they agree, you know, we're all academics here and researchers, but we agree with a fair argument that if, you know, we take a single topic and what's been discussed about this, you d- put everything on the table. These are all the fours and these are all the against. You don't just put these are all the against and therefore nothing's going on. We'll ignore the fours. Do the sceptics see the most haunted and lump you guys all together? Um, I think some of the really stupid ones, and there are some really stupid ones out there that assume that that's how it's done. And, that's you know, from looking at that, look at the methodology. Then. It's terrible. They're running about in the dark with a video camera, and that's how haunting but, investigations are. I mean, that, that will get millions of views. And Most Haunted had live shows. At oh, yeah. It was bigger than, like, X Factor. Yeah. And that's what gets the views, whereas the journals, the academic papers, won't get near those numbers. No. We, we get so a few serious... Skeptics skeptics have of what parapsychology is. We get a few serious people through the door on that basis, because you, you mentioned at the start of this, and I said, well, it's a 50-50 outcome. It brings people into the field, I'm sure. That's yeah. what happens. So one side was that it misled what we did, yeah, um, but still created quite a following. The other side was we noticed a, excuse me, a very slight increase. Students were doing a psychology degree anyway, and they're picking their third-year modules and they think, oh, parapsychology, that's interesting. We get some students that came here specifically to do a psychology degree just so they could do that third-year taught module in parapsychology. That's pretty cool. It was their only route through it. And I have to admit, I'm one of those people that did that as well because I came from a background in acting uh, and just thought this is useless. You know, you can't really get noticed just by getting a degree in acting or anything like that. Usually it's sort of knowing people. Yeah, you can just act. You don't need the degree for it. Right? A- exactly. So it. I thought <laughs> get a qualification that might be useful later on and could be a good fallback because you might be able to apply it to a number of things. So I thought do a psychology degree. But look, there are places that do taught modules of parapsychology. So you can go back to your initial interests of, yeah. um, you know, going to the library and reading these books. You can go and do this as a taught thing and maybe focus your dissertation on it. So that's what I did. And we've seen loads of students through the door that have done that, but off the back of Most Haunted as well. And, and they've re-educated themselves throughout the yeah, process because they've learned about psychology, methodology. Yeah. Does it stay objective then? Oh, yeah. The, 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 but the, the, the worry then is if it becomes sort of dogmatic and these things exist, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell them if they've got that view, then they're just as bad as those people saying that nothing's going on. And to be honest, we also get those kinds of students through the door that take on the module that either are completely believing and say, well, I had all these experiences, something must be going on. And people saying, I'm taking this module because I want to make the lecturers look stupid because I know nothing's going on. And you have to say, first and foremost, both sides of you are the makings of bad scientists. 
you need to be in the middle. Don't go in assuming everything's going on and don't go in assuming nothing's going on. Be objective, put your personal beliefs to one side and measure what's there and reach a conclusion based on what we know from our knowledge base. What's the epistemology behind this? And then from studying it, what conclusions can you make about the ontology? Is something going on or is it all conventional or does it all fit within the paradigms of psychology that we are aware of or even physics as well? Because there's going to be overlaps if you're dealing with locations as well, how the environment plays an impact on the mind. Yeah. Is that like a file drawer issue? That was the thing that parapsychologists complained about, uh, sorry, complained parapsychology about and said, well, it's only producing significant results anyway because of the file drawer effect. It's it's creating all these studies where it found nothing, then it'll only publish one where it does find something. And actually, that seems to be the problem of other sciences. It's an issue in cognitive at the minute, isn't it? Oh, I don't know. I think so, because uh, I heard the example of someone's PhD, like 10 trials, and uh, and it's not her fault they were all submitted to publication, but the only ones that made it through were the two. Oh, I, no, I did hear about that, yeah. The two that essentially produced the That's terrible. Result, and the other eight were ignored, and it's not her fault she submitted all of them. But the thing is, if you want to get recognised in some of the other sciences, that's the deadly thing, that they will only accept a paper if it found something. But two out of ten means you haven't found anything. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what they're accusing parapsychology of. But that's why from day one, even when it established the Journal of Parapsychology in 1937, I think it was, um, they had a policy of um, anything. Even if you don't find anything, publish the paper because we're learning from it. That policy has remained ever since day one with all journals um, pertaining to psychical research and parapsychology. You will find a variety of papers in there, which for the students is confusing because then they think, well, nothing's going on. No, what we have is an honesty effect in the fact that if something didn't come about in this study, it's still been published and debated anyway. So someone should just replicate. Replication is important. There should be journals on replication, but there aren't. There should be psychologists just dedicated to being the replicator. Mm. I'm going to replicate everything and prove or disprove what you're doing. That was the problem with Daryl Bem's study when he was looking at precognition and he published it in the Journal of um, Personality and Social Psychology. Really mainstream. It got through it, found stuff for precognition. So instantly several people did replications and tried to send it to the journal. And the journal said, A, we don't publish replications, and B, you didn't find anything. And so they, the, they couldn't publish a response to what he found. But that's so the they, whole point of the replication, that either we didn't find anything and the original study found something, so now we need to do like a... Like in boxing, if one mm-hmm. guy wins, the other guy wins, you need to do a third one. Yep. So you need to do another one, you need to keep going until you find something. Mm-hmm. You can't say, <coughs> we don't publish replications. Oh, you mean the bit where we find out if the research was correct? Yeah. You can't publish that. <laughs> and you, you can't publish it because you didn't find anything. Oh, you mean my actual scientific findings you can't publish? Yeah. No, it, and that, that's horrible. People think that parapsychologists got to be dishonest if it's finding things. And that's not the case. From everything I've observed, I've met really honest people that are rigorous with their methods and you're usually very good at stats and everything gets put on the table. Mm. And they've got a, a wide knowledge base as well for the literature. Whereas I've worked in other departments before and at, you know different universities that don't support parapsychology, that don't like what I was doing. And, you know, they assumed file draw effect and stuff like that or just not perceiving the or interpreting the data correctly. And that's why he thinks something's going on. And yet several times I saw them fiddle data where, you know, they didn't find their hypothesis, but they found something else. So they rewrote the hypothesis and said, there we go, I'll publish it like that. So what, you, you didn't find what you were looking for. You found something else and decided to pretend that you predicted that, did you? Yeah. That's scientific, is it? I always have to mention that to the first year students. I understand why they think that, but when they think they don't get a significant result, they're like, oh... Mm. And it's because of the word significant. I think it mm. means it's not important. But that's just a, as a non-significant result is just as impressive or just as interesting yeah. as 
same with the correlation. It's just as interesting to find no correlation mm. between smoking and heart disease mm. as if you found one. Especially why, if you're doing that off the back of another study, they did find it. Yeah. Um, because yeah, we yeah, often get got, the students to do replications. You've got lots to talk about in your discussion, fill up your word count, get a good grade. You've mm. got lots of smart things to bring in, other research, all sorts of stuff to bring yeah. in. So, yeah, I always have to mention that to the students. But I mean, uh, but that's a problem generally in science, isn't it? The file draw issue, publication bias. Yeah, I, I think that there's so much more, uh, as you mentioned, with the cognitive sciences there. Um, that's clearly going on because partly the, their publication policy, but... You know, if they're doing that many studies that failed, and that's a lot of time to get those studies done to then reach a, an endpoint where you didn't find anything and realise this will not be accepted for publication to then start again. But if you've got 20 studies that didn't or whatever and three that did, then clearly nothing's going on. Those three are statistical anomaly or something else going on, some sort of information leakage or demand characteristic or experimental bias, something's going on that's caused those anomalies. Parapsychology has been way more honest. And uh, I think also the good thing um, about some of these uh, studies is doing meta-analyses as well and looking to your F value. And, and we tell that to the students as well when we look at like the Gansfeld and how successful that's been over time. And we bring together all these replications that have been put into one study to look at the overall effect. And the great thing is once you've got that and it still shows an effect, you can look to your F value and the F value tells you um, how many studies would need to be conducted and not submitted with this to be a fluke. So right, it gives okay. you some inclination. Yeah, it gives you an inclination as the file draw effect as to if this is a fluke, then how many studies are we not including that didn't find anything? Mm. And it reaches a stupid number, and you think that would be hours upon hours upon days of research. You know, we looked at some, in, you know, they could then say that the parapsychology as a field isn't big enough to have done those. Yeah, we don't have the time, days, resources, money. You know, if you've done a study, the time it takes to do it, you may as well publish it. So no, that would be your evidence. Yeah, I mean, some of these numbers for the F value are in their 60s and 70s, and you're like, I haven't got time to do 60 or 70 failed studies <laughs> for the sake of publishing one that did find something. But, you know, you can see that happening in the other sciences, and it's not their fault entirely. They'd have to find an outlet that allows null it's findings. A, it's a funding issue, though, isn't it? I mean, rep I mean, you said the journal is not publishing replications. Mm -hmm. For your career, you need to get publications. Yeah, you do. So someone needs to publish them. Yeah. So, so that they're worthwhile doing. That also brings us back, though, to the problem that at university there's a lot of demand for high-impact factor journals, and sometimes a high-impact factor journal is not as relevant to your paper as one that doesn't have a high-impact factor, and yet it'll get to the people that matter and the people that will read it. Um, and, and this Maybe is another... the job of new media to do these replications until someone pays attention. R so a, bl a blogger, science bloggers, people that know a lot. Maybe it's their job to do it until until someone pays enough attention and actually includes them in academic journals. I think the more the media speak about these things, the better, because we're getting nothing truthful through mainstream things like BBC, ITV and Channel 4 and whatever. When they do documentaries, I've seen some that are very one-sided. Uh, I think the last time I saw them, I mean, John has been on here discussing psychedelics. Yeah. And the last time I saw them mentioning psychedelics mainstream, I think it was The One Show or something like that, and they were talking about psilocybin from the magic mushrooms and um, how they were trying to use it to help people with anxiety and depression. It was a yeah. proper university-based study. The ethics had been approved. Is that, That's probably a MAPS study, right? Um, or uh, the Berkeley Foundation. London. It might have been the Berkeley Foundation. Yeah. But the, I just thought, ooh, you nasty people. They, they'd edited it in such a way that out of all the participants involved in the trial, the one that they bothered to film was the one who had the worst side effect from it. So he's panicking and screaming like like mad on the, on this trip. Like he's meant to be coping with his own anxiety and depression here, but you've decided to film the person who's had the worst 
um, kind of outcome, which as far as they're concerned, that doesn't happen that often. They're aware that it does, but I'm like, that's now really misleading. So you're talking about this new research, great for you, but now what you've done is put on the telly the fact that it doesn't look like a pleasant thing to take at all. But their job's not to give us the, the objective truth. No. We think it is, but their job is to literally make us watch. Yeah. Which is, you know, why putting a guy having a bad trip mm. is what you think. Problem then is that informs opinion on what LSD research is. You you rarely see anything publicly that will say that drugs are a good thing or that there's, you know, some good side effects from it. Except yeah. unless you're in that bubble. I'm in that Twitter bubble a lot. Mm. Um, like around the 420 time, the legal, first legalisation mm-hmm. in the States, I was, I was added by like 420... And then Louisiana or 420, what, and it was literally every state, <laughs> <laughs> every state, 420 Denver, 420 whatever, Colorado, mm. not Denver, but every single state like added me on on Twitter because yeah. then you get stuck in this. Like, he's a weed guy. There's the weed bubble. Mm. Like, uh, but you, and that's a, that's an issue with everything. I guess if you're a skeptic, you're stuck in the skeptic mm. bubble. It's all these issues, uh, and and going back to the Paris stuff as well. That sometimes I think <coughs> makes me does make me question my profession and whether I want to kind of keep putting up with this bullshit of having to fight the cause mm. because you just realise that you are a minority and your friends and colleagues at work are the mon- minority as well and the people you go to conferences with and publish with are the minority and beyond that every time you go to a house party or meet someone they say oh what do you do and they've developed this hardened view from the media you're having to explain yourself from what scratch what do you say? Well, I, I pick my battles very wisely, and sometimes if I'm just not up for starting from scratch um, and thinking, this this is bullshit, I really can't be bothered doing this again, I'll, I'll just say psychologist, and usually after that they'll either think, ooh, you know, better watch what my body thinking? language, yeah, <laughs> yeah, what am I thinking, am I psychic? Um, uh, and it usually cuts the conversation dead there because there's sometimes a bit of intimidation or they can't think of anything to say. If I say parapsychologist, then they'll say, oh, what's that? And It'll go one of two ways. It'll either tell you about their strange experiences or you'll get someone that's really not happy with it, that they don't like the fact that someone could be paid as a parapsychologist. Admittedly, there's not many paid positions, but there's some people that think, you know, this isn't going on, so your job shouldn't exist, and I can't believe you're actually finding anything. In fact, I think you must be making it up. But But even if it isn't going on, psychologically, you should... Oh, not uh, Scientifically, you should think... Like, I mean, like I said, I'm sceptical. So I would say that it's not going on but that's just a belief it's not based mm. on anything so yeah. it's just as stupid as, as saying you know the moon's made of cheese mm. it's not based on anything it's just based on the fact that I've not had this experience therefore I would say it's not going on mm. but I do my very best to be objective all the time mm. and my favourite thing in the world to be is devil's advocate Yeah. so I like to look at the evidence and see you know are the procedures robust and what kind of stats you get in, what mm. things are fine, and what are the experiences people are having. Yeah. And people are experiencing these things, or mm-hmm. at least believe they're experiencing these things. Therefore, just to me, scientifically, they're valid enough to look at. You've had a different experience to the people, though. You're a scientist, and I'd have fun speaking to you at a house party. These, these are people that are sofa sceptics, and right, okay. they've got no background in science. I've just told them what I do, and their opinion has come from you know, listening to people like Brian Cox and Richard Dawkins and so forth, people who have nothing to do with the field whatsoever and don't read this stuff. 
I certainly wouldn't go on media and start talking about astrophysics or biology because I'm not a biologist and I'm not an astrophysicist. So I wouldn't preach about it. But I remember this house party with this one guy. He left because he didn't like what I did. (laughs) Him and his wife, he got really frustrated because I invited him here. I said, if you don't believe we've got any of this stuff, come to the library. I'll show you the archives and stuff. If you don't think there's any significant finding whatsoever for these testings in the lab, I'll show you. I'll buy you a coffee and you'll have a good day. It's pretty delicate to be that offended by that. he, He left. He couldn't stand me and my presence and my profession he's like no that's not happening i'm going home that's, a bit, <laughs> is that, that's not a right response. i'll go and turn the tv back on and listen to some richard dawkins he'll put me right <laughs> that's not the right response no i think no i think though you do there should be a place for this interdisciplinary skepticism though mm. so a physicist understanding the nature of reality mm-hmm. should be able to talk somewhat on psychological stuff oh, because some, we're based in reality. We've got some excellent scientists involved in this. People assume that it's all psychologists and they think that's probably the downfall of parapsychology, but that's not the case. We've got historians, philosophers, biologists, you know, Rupert Sheldrake being one of the main noted biologists involved with this, but then um, even our council members for the Society for Psychical Research, we've got Professor Bernard Carr, who's a physicist and mathma- uh, mathematician, and he's one of Stephen Hawking's ex-students as well, and he's been heavily involved in the field talking about multidimensional theory, um, and then Jim Beekler as well, Dr. Jim Beekler in the States. He's a paraphysicist as well. He's been trying to apply physics to the idea of why we have these experiences. And it is nice interdisciplinary dialogue. I wish that the media more so had more open debates. I think Sheldrake needs more of a media platform than he gets. He gets a lot of radio shows and podcasts and stuff like that. But what I would love to see on the telly, which they never got around to doing because he, he pulled out when he got deceived into why he was doing it, and he speaks about it on one YouTube clip that was was up somewhere after he gave a talk. But I'd love to see him in dialogue with Dawkins. They're both biologists. They're both incredibly smart people. But they're coming at it from two different angles. Rupert's open to it. He looks at the data. He applies good method. Whereas Dawkins has already made up his mind. And you can see that. And I don't... I mean, I'm in two minds as to where I see atheism. Part of me thinks it it is a belief system. Therefore, it's a kind of a religion in a sense. Uh, I don't believe in anything. In terms of the, the meaning of the word, no. But I know what you mean, like the new atheists. Yeah. He, he apply, so, I, I believe he applies this to his thought pattern with everything that comes forward in science. And right. I think that's the downfall of his scientific approach in the fact that if I follow this kind of athe- atheistic approach, then there's certain things that just can't possibly happen. Therefore, I don't need to give them the time of day, life after death, psychic processing and so forth. We already have conventional explanations. Oh, so, so, so like anything that's in religion... You say he's nonsense. Well, yeah, even I mean, though some it, of it, has in a sense, you, some sort of ancient knowledge, you know, be nice to each other and stuff. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he seems to just be really dismissive of it, and I'd just love to see him in dialogue with Rupert, just talking about the evidence for telepathy. And Rupert tried to do this once, and Rupert just, um, sorry, Richard Dawkins directed Rupert away, and said that we you know we're not here to talk about that. And Rupert tried to get him to talk through the evidence of it. Anyone listening, just check it out on YouTube. But I, I remember me and David were watching um, a YouTube clip where. Richard Dawkins was with a physicist he usually talks with in this open dialogue forum. They'll, they'll kind of rent out massive lecture theatres. And there's this one girl, she couldn't articulate her question, bless her. I, and I perfectly got where she was coming from, so did David. And she was a, a chemist, a PhD candidate in chemistry. Um, she said, look, I'm a Christian, I'm a very devout Christian, but my beliefs do not come into science. Whatever I'm doing in science, it has no place there whatsoever. They're two different things. It's my personal belief in my personal life right. and my profession and my place as a scientist. Why do you let your atheistic beliefs come into your views of science and the way you approach it? 
And he couldn't answer it. He kept on diverting the question, saying, oh, I don't understand what you're trying to say. That's nonsense. And she kept trying to reword it, and both of them just fobbed her off. I just thought, you idiots. I, I get where she's coming from. She's clearly very nervous. She's speaking to a room full of 2,000 people, and you're Some seen people. as the two authorities on stage here that seem to know it all, and you don't get where she's coming from. I perfectly get where she's coming from. You, you've got this kind of very kind of cynical approach where you're adamant that these paradigms can't shift, that you believe are, are set, and that if something else comes up, it just can't possibly be happening, with partly because you're not willing to look. With chemistry, though, you can not bring your religious beliefs into it because if you mix these two chemicals it should have the same result every time you do it Mm -hmm. that's different with psychology yeah because it's all oh it's all an interpretation and that's why i've considered it a hard science all all the time i don't like it when people refer to psychology as soft science or not even a science at all it's like trying to nail jelly to a wall trying to get a a consistent result with human behavior it's almost impossible to generalize anything Mm. i was was speaking to a professor of psychology involved in clinical psychology and forensic psychology at the university of sheffield the other day he's involved in um editorials for the skeptic magazine and he was offering like a randy prize so if anyone that could come to the university and be tested for their alleged psychic abilities that they could produce at will then they get ten thousand pounds or whatever and i think they'd only test five people so I wanted to know more about this because I didn't know they were doing that. Yeah. Um, apparently he'd done it in his own time more so and he hadn't got a background in parapsychology so he couldn't really comment on any research that we'd done. Not that I was sending him anything for reviewers' comments, I just thought he'd be interested in the fact that we did a remote, view, a remote viewing study find times over and got good significance and good effect size. Something seemed to be going on. And um, he said, uh, I've never understood the Gansfeld and why you have so many people doing it, because I explained that we don't test psychics, we test general members of the public to see if when we put them in an altered state of consciousness, can we promote psi by making them think more internally and focus on these thoughts and visions that come to them mm. when they're focusing on a target. The studies seem to suggest, yes, something's going on. What? We don't fully know. That's The next step, I guess, would be a neuroscientific approach to see what changes are happening during that altered state um, in the brain. And so he said, I don't get that. If someone's actually got these abilities, you should be able to find it on the basis of one. And as like, that's well, absolutely just like, one. You don't need to take, you know, many participants through like 14 each trial and then do a replication. That you, would be assuming that we're all the same. Exactly. All the same. But I said, well, you can kind of see that. I mean, we have done setups before for TV programs. And I remember it was just me in the Gansfeld and uh, Graham Smith. Dr. Graham Smith was looking at the target. And qualitatively, I got it spot on. And it really shocked him because he's very skeptical. Mm-hmm. And the TV show were really impressed and said, well, there's an example of the basis of one, but not many people who accept qualitative we, findings in that sense. That's why we turn same. to the numbers. You can't, you can't do... I mean, I respond to carbs differently than, than you probably do. Yeah. Like, we'll all respond differently. To I say that to the students I with happiness. I might smoke for 40 years and not get cancer. Yeah. You might um, not uh, smoke and still... You know what I mean? Like, it... I say this to the students with happiness, and I say, look, you know, everyone's happiness and likes are, are different, and this is why we struggle to nail down the psychology of happiness. Yeah. Hands up how many of you know who Peter Kay is, and about two-thirds of the audience do. Yeah. And then I say, right, with, way more yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, with those of you that have got your hands up now, put your hands down if you don't find them funny. Uh, and then, you know, again, about 50%, there's a, a change there. I'm like, there you go. Comedian, profession is to be funny, yet n- only a few of you do find him funny. Yet yeah. if I name another comedian, we'll have a change of hands again, and another one, and another one. We've all got different tastes, we've all got different likes, we've all got different personality characteristics that we warm to, and different sets of humour. So some of these things, even just human emotions, are so hard to nail down and find consistent. Um, and this is why, funnily enough, when you actually talk about happiness research to people, 
And they think, well, that's nonsense. There can't surely be a science behind looking at human emotions and happiness. We all know what happiness is. And when you actually tell people about the studies that have actually been done, the ironic thing is they get very unhappy about it. So there's the interesting thing. They get really annoyed when they find out that there's actual research done into human emotions because we don't understand them as much as people think they do. No, but again, we think we understand them because we have them. Mm. But that's, you know, you can't generalise for no. those, same, those same reasons. And this is why I find it hard. Put chemical A to chemical B, more times than not, you will get chemical C output. And sometimes you could have a contamination or something that gives you that curveball or something that falls outside the bell curve. With human behaviour, it's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, if that chemical grew up and its nature as a chemical uh, depended on who its parents were mm. and where it lived, <laughs> what kind of bottle it was in and what school it got sent what to what school it got sent to you would have different it, it would make chemistry much more difficult mm-hmm. you couldn't find that if I add this much of this to this much of this this is what happens every time yeah without the contaminants the problem is humans have all contaminants unless you could take a baby from birth and raise them in psychology studies yeah. like the Truman Show I think that so unless you could do that and map genomes, which obviously with CRISPR, we, at some point we're going to be able to do that. Yeah. But ethically, you're never going to give no. me a baby. No, who's going to fund that, really? And who's going to give you their baby mm. to work out what attachment <laughs> really is? You know. So Th- this goes back to what Rupert said when he, he was challenging Richard, and Richard said, "Look, let me tell you what I think about you, Rupert. You know, I, I think you're a fool, and you're prepared to believe anything." And Rupert's comeback was, "I think you're a fool and a bigot, and you make science look bad." And it was because of all just targeting opinion. And it was constant opinion. I, mean, I, I don't remember the last actual study that Richard Dawkins was involved in. It, it, know, it's it's all popular science opinion. And, but the, the main thing that I do know for a fact is that he's not been involved in parapsychology, yet he's, he's frequently talked out about these areas and given what he perceives, or at least lets people perceive, is a conclusive you know, endpoint. There's nothing going on. There's and do you think that's not based in him reading parapsychology? Absolutely not, because most of the time when I've seen him been challenged, he doesn't seem to know what's gone on. He doesn't seem to know the people, the numbers, the studies that have been gone on. It's just a very sweeping view. Or if it is anything, it's looking at Wikipedia again. So you'd want to see a debate? Oh, I, I would love it. I mean, I, I would love it. I mean, again, no, I, it sounds like I'm harshly attacking Richard Dawkins. No, I, you, it's not specifically him. It's yeah, I, I, of- I, I get annoyed with his output and the fact that he's got a media platform and he's in some respects it's being abused I don't doubt he's an incredibly intelligent man of course and he is an intelligent man I enjoyed the God delusion and the selfish gene and stuff like that they're really good pieces of work but you know I get annoyed with him and people like Professor Brian Cox for speaking out about areas that don't concern them and so again it becomes another battle for us to re-educate people that say I thought this meant that no that's all you've heard on TV let's start again and you have to try and get people to forget these popular figures that are termed a generic scientist on TV and say there's no such thing as a generic scientist, someone who deals with all the sciences and knows everything about no, all the it's sciences. far too much to read no, in just one discipline. Exactly. Yeah. So these people are specialists in their own field, but they've just been put on telly to talk about science because they're a scientist of some regard. Is there, like a, is there a skeptical opinion to explain, let's say, apparitions? Is uh, there a... a so not just saying you didn't see that. Yeah. Is there a, a skeptical minefield? So? Minefield of conventional ones: misdirection, misinterpretation, hypnagogic and hypnopompic states. If you woke up um, from bed, you were going to sleep and you saw something so at the end of the bed, or you were coming out of sleep and you saw something. Um, 
you could even take it through to physiological things such as Charles Bonnet syndrome, so a spontaneous smearing of vision that hasn't been diagnosed. You see a kind of blurry figure at the end of the corridor and you blink again and it's gone. Environmental factors, infrasound, that can make the eyeball shake inside the socket and that creates a spontaneous smearing of vision. You'll definitely get that on London Underground with the amount of infrasound that's down there. Um, EMF levels, if they're too high in a certain environment due to generators and all sorts, that can create the sense of someone else being there. Same for infrasound as well, actually. Hair standing up on the back of your neck. There's a variety. Do you try and explain things in that way first? Oh, absolutely. Even the the lectures that we have for the students, they go through all of these conventional explanations that it could be, and then we talk about instances where you think, now, do any of these apply? Here's an instance where an apparition is talking to someone, they look no more solid than you or I, that they perfectly seem real, they've had the conversation, it's only after the fact they discover it couldn't possibly have happened. You know, they've spoken to someone that people know in that property has died some 20 or 30 years prior and yet you've had a full-on conversation. The person was consciously aware, they responded to your questions, you heard them respond as well, they go beyond it. I think that's the only argument for survival and some of the independence of apparitions that Carlos Osis put forward, and he collected a few cases where there seemed to be independent conscious awareness in some apparitions, mm. uh, and better in those cases where there was multiple witnesses to them as well. So if you've got multiple witnesses, and maybe even veridical information coming from the apparition, so it delivers something that only that deceased person should have known about, that you can go and look up, then that adds a case to it. Not necessarily of survival of death, because in all those instances, you could still explain that via ESP. If that information exists somewhere, then it's still a case that you could be picking, yeah, right. picking it up clairvoyantly. If you can look it up, then you could have it's, picked it up. It's a massive debate I'm, I'm still writing on now, because I'm on the Survival Research Committee for the SPR, and it's a very tricky debate to get out of. It's very difficult to actually pin down anything that would suggest survival of death. Uh, and my own kind of views on that from the evidence that I've seen, I've become more and more sceptical. And I seriously, from the evidence I've seen, I seriously don't think that if we do survive death, it's anything like having a conscious awareness like you or I have right now, um, unless it's like a dream state. From the evidence that's come forward, it's like fragments exist in a, a metempsychosis and transmigration aspect. That, and, and Rupert's talked about this with morphic resonance, the fact that there's some information exchange that goes on to the next generation just to improve our evolutionary processes and make us better the fact that it's easier to obtain and understand that information the next generation, the next generation. And the same goes for skills as well and why we see it in the animal kingdom. The spiderling that gets hatched, it doesn't get taught how to make a web, it just knows and it's just passed on. And you can get that with habits and different... Um, creatures you know that, that know how to open a knot or get into things i think he talked about sparrows that uh, sparrows that knew how to take the foil off the top of milk bottles and then sparrows somewhere completely different started to do it as well ah, okay. so this information exchange was happening so that so that would <coughs> so that would support the theory then that sort of the change in genetics far quicker than sort of genetic memory yeah th- and, and through this morphic field as well is, is like a it's a field that's out there as well so there's years we haven't had milk bottles <laughs> yes, but these but sparrows have worked it out. And they've worked it out, and so sparrows doing. somewhere else seem to know it instantly without learning from the other ones. Because unless it, they, they also work it out. Mm-hmm. But then it was looking at through the generations, the next batch that get hatched. They do know, they, do they, they instantly do it rather than figure it out? Yeah. And do they get better? Do they get more kind of just going straight for the milk bottle because they there's a pull toward it of knowing what it's for. That would make me think that if I had no musical talent, mm-hmm. no. That's I couldn't play any instruments. Yeah. Um, and then had a kid, and then I learned all the instruments brilliantly, mm-hmm. and had another kid. Would that kid be better at music? 
you'd have to look at that through the generations. It'd be a very longitudinal study. But yeah. this is what he's getting at. All with hypothetical because I mm. can't learn all the instruments between the periods mm. of having kids. Because at some point, go and try it now. See what point, happens. At some age, your balls stop working so well. Yeah. So you know you can't learn. Said that in a very Yorkshire accent. <laughs> the balls, at some the age, your balls stop working I've so well. I've never even been to Yorkshire. <laughs> no, I haven't. My lad. <coughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think fragments uh, remain. You can see this in reincarnation, where if some child comes forward with like images and ideas of another family or skills that they didn't have, and that's happened in some way, you know, a three-year-old instantly knows how to play the piano or something else that's really skillful, and they seem to be able to do it. And whoever they're claiming to be from a prior life, you know, also had these talents and skills as well. The moment, though, you put two and two together and you take them to somewhere that that prior knowledge, that prior personality seems to know about even the house they lived in, it goes. That they don't seem to remember anymore. Later on in life, if you remind them about it, they don't know about talking about another family or anything like that. Do they then forget how to play the piano? I don't know in those studies. I need to kind of go back to those. If it's a case where they're not possessed. I would assume maybe not, and and that will go back to this kind of whole kind of morphic field thing. But if they don't forget the piano, then it's not that they have this... It's not that they know the piano because of their reincarnation, their memory of someone else. Mm. Because if you go to a place that they should remember then yeah, and forget, they should forget the piano. Yeah. Because that person has left them. I'll go back to uh, next time I'll tell you what I can find from those cases and whether they forgot it or carried on. I mean, some of those cases as well, they had xenoglossy as well, so they're speaking languages they'd never been taught and and they were accurate with it. And again, it related to the prior personality they claimed to be. One of the problems I have, though, is that people suck. So people will lie and mm. say things like that and oh, yeah. just taught their kid German. Oh, and yeah. Say, oh, well, that, speak German. that was found out in some cases. I mean, one of the most famous researchers of reincarnation was a medical doctor, a psychiatrist called Ian Stevenson. And he did a really good proceedings book called 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. And he kept on looking at other cases and he looked at the biology behind it, especially when people had got scars. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, you know, I believed in a former life I got stabbed there. And it related to this person who did get stabbed. And this kind of birthmark relates to a wound that the previous person had had. And Rogo had looked at one particular case where Stevenson had said this person had never been taught this particular language. I can't remember what it was. And... So Stevenson had claimed that and published it. And Rogo went back and from interviewing just a couple of people and found out that the case was they had been teaching themselves that language and tried to publish in the correspondence in the Journal of Parapsychology about this. And Stevenson got very angry Mm. and threatened a bit of a lawsuit if um, JP or the Journal of Parapsychology or J.B. Reiner or Scott Rogo actually allowed this publication to go through, this correspondence. Apparently he started writing a reply and I think he just got too frustrated with Rogo and just said, you know, oh, for fuck's sake, <laughs> you know, he's doing it again, he's complaining. R- Rogo was always, you know, replying to things. He was so strict, and yet some people thought he was jumping to conclusions too quickly, yet his, his methodological rigour was really there. He would look at every avenue, and if he found someone wasn't exploring all avenues, then he would bring them up on it. And in this case, Stevenson had been found to have accepted something without digging deeper. That's needed. That kind of oh, sceptic yeah. is... Super useful. Really rigorous, though, when you're doing field studies. There's not m- that many students now that are actually taught. You know, they're, they're usually taught you can do a survey or you can interview people. And that's the main thing. Not Go out into the real world and go and look at this case or figure out how this happened or go and observe. Because that feels more like an opinion piece, though, doesn't it? Because well, it, it's interpretation. It is an opinion. It doesn't make it less valid. It just it kind of is that. It's an opinion piece on how you take it in. But if it's got a variety of sources you're tracking down and also you're filming as well as watching, then you can take it back and analyse it or give it to an independent judge as well for their opinion so you've got a comparison. 
But if you're okay, I think it's okay to have an opinion piece. We oh, take that from politics. We do that with interviews as well, and that's why you do reflexivity. You know, I've interviewed this person. First of all, before I tell you what I think of their interview, this is my own experience of what they've also experienced. So yeah. let's go into this straight away so you know where I'm coming from. That's the interesting idea about um, qualitative data being open. Mm-hmm. Because it would be interesting to see from another person's interpretation. Oh, yeah. Especially if... The original study didn't conduct the interview because mm-hmm. then it's different. And that, and that is actually happening in the open forum thing through parapsychology. They're not just accepting quantitative findings. They want open data for the qualitative stuff as well. And usually when you trans- transcribe that stuff anyway, things are changed for pseudonyms, so it's absolutely fine. I mean, you just put that in your ethics or your consent forms and this will go to an open data forum. Yeah. But just to let you know, everything is anonymous. And it's just so if anyone questions what I've interpreted of this, they can analyze it for themselves yeah, if they don't think the themes that i found are valid themes or whatever yeah secondary interpretations are, would be super useful for that and that's why we have independent judges in things like the, the study we're doing with the flotation tanks at the moment when i come out i write down and draw all of my impressions and they're all sealed in an envelope and so everyone knows how it's working i'm in a tank in nottingham and david saunders is here in a perception lab like the one that we're sat in now for this podcast and he's got a pool of some 50 clips 50 pools of clips and one of them gets selected. So let's say pool 27 by the computer. And within that pool are four video clips. And the computer selects one of the four to be played repeatedly until he tells the program to stop. And while he's watching that, I've also started my time in the tank and I've relaxed and I'm in the dark and floating around. No eye shield, I'm just looking into darkness. But I start to get hallucinations because of the effect that it's causing. And all the visions and impressions and thoughts and sounds that I get, I write them down afterwards. As soon as I come out, I tell him that I've stopped. So he stops what he's doing. He writes down the target and seals it in an envelope, and he just writes on the envelope which pool to watch. So he gets the judge to watch pool 27. So the judge, the independent judge, who has nothing to do with what we're doing on that trial, will watch pool 27 and all four clips. And then they will open my envelope and look at my impressions, and they will take all of the different elements about what I've seen, whether it's in black and white or not. Did I see an element of water or not? Were there people around or not? So they might score it in a binary way and add up all the features that were present and weren't, and then they get to rank order which was the most likely relation to one of the clips. And then they discover which one is the target after that as well, after they've rank ordered. Um, so that's how it's done. Um, trying to see if they match. Uh, yeah. Um, the problem is, um, you know, it's good sometimes to even rotate judges because one judge's opinion on your detail and creativity within the drawings and your interpretations might be different from the next. And I found this when I was doing my master's and I was looking at creativity in terms of people's views of what the afterlife may be like. And I used two or three different judges based on uh, an allegedly approved... uh, Well, it's not allegedly, it was approved, but I don't agree with it, um, creativity scale. And I just found that no one can make up their mind on what creativity is because, again, it's so individualistic on what one person likes and the other person doesn't. Even though you could say, well, creativity is this, look at this and this element as well. Even if you try to break it down, you're still getting them to look at something and then make a decision afterwards as well. So I found it was all over the place. My judges were psychologists and they all had different views on what creativity was, even using this scale. So changing judges, I guess, also is to counteract you can look for some level making. Yeah, you can look for some level of consistency, whether they have made it objective and not kind of weighed it themselves on a personal basis. Yeah, because, I mean, you'll look at a picture and try and make it fit. Mm -hmm. That's a criticism of remote viewing, right? 
Uh, that you'll look yeah. at some abstract thing and be like, oh, that looks like a church tower because that's what you. At least with some of those studies, we'll do it afterwards just to make them feel better, even before it's gone to the judge, so they'll feel that what they did for an hour wasn't wasted. They'll right. say, oh, look, you've done really well, and we'll do that just for their kind of debriefing session. So you don't just say, oh, look, you know, you you've looked at the you thought you were going to the Sahara Desert and here's Niagara Falls. You say, but look at the shapes that you drew. You know, the, you've done these waves, but it looks more like not sand, sand dunes. It looks more like waves going down a fall. Um, it doesn't matter because you're just saying it to them to make them right. feel that that session was good. It wasn't wasted and well done for coming out with these interpretations. And the Afterwards, the real... the, it's the judge's opinion after this because those sand dunes, they might have actually written underneath, I feel it's very dry, it's sandy, it's hot, I'm getting yellows and oranges. Mm-hmm. Clearly won't relate to Niagara Falls. Up to them, though, when they're wearing it, weighing it against um, three other clips yeah. as well. I mean, there's got to be something with remote viewing, right? If the US government oh, God. and the Russians are doing what they did. Yeah, there's a fantastic book called ESP Wars East and West um, that's been redone over time. I think it was Victor Zamet, uh, Ed May, uh, Lloyd Auerbach. And a uh, physicist uh, involved in power Yeah, recovery. Yeah, and Joseph McGonagall, who's um, involved in the US military. I think he's a US general. But, I mean, the idea of remote viewing is that they try to weaponize it, right? So that you can mm. imagine, not imagine, but I guess access knowledge about sort of what's well, what, or something. What, you what your enemy is doing and they did actually take <laughs> it that far because if you get the book you'll see there's two medals on the front and one of the medals I think it's the one with the red ribbon was given to the five or six people that were selected as good remote viewers and this is where they got um, important statisticians involved Jessica Utz is the president of the American Statistical Association she's heavily involved in parapsychology and she found that only one in 100 people are good naturally at remote viewing and so this is how they selected some of the soldiers as well and once they got those that seemed to be naturally good at ESP tests they kind of trained them to see if they could improve these skills and so they all got these medals for being part of this force that were intelligence gathering Mm. trying to go into offices of the enemies and look in drawers and look up files and see what codes were written on them and stuff one of them and I don't know if it was Joseph himself he received the other medal that's on there that's got the blue ribbon for um, intelligence gathering and so he got a medal for the information so he came out with. Some useful information. God, yeah, especially when you look at how much money went into it as well. I mean, Million all of this stuff was classified for a long time. Well, right, oh, long time. And then there's even some stuff that's still even secretly, secretly going on now. It, over time, it gets declassified. It's no secret that this is going on, though. And then, yet again, you know, go back to the kind of house parties that you go to. You talk about this stuff, and people say, oh, that's all made up for the movies. It's never. But I mean, that's, what, that's the thing. If, I mean, if the US government are. I mean, yeah, it's Cold War, so you try anything that might work. Mm. But to do it for 20 years, 20 years is long enough to realise if it's bollocks or not. Yeah, the, the Russians were absolutely fascinated with it, especially when they had the... Um, it's claimed that she was debunked, but not from the research reports I've read. It seems to just be the popular cynical opinion. But Nina Kalagina, or Kulagina, some people call her, she could move all kinds of objects. Um, she'd get very kind of exhausted and she'd perspirate when she was inside these studies. And not only would she move metal items, but she was moving cigarettes and pencils and wooden balls, especially when they were in bell jars as well, so no air or anything like that. Mm. Subtle breathing could get to it. The only assumption was that perhaps she had a magnet within her bra when she leant forward. Yeah, you see, this it makes me... Like, even when you say that, hmm. something inside me is, like, uncomfortable saying that's nonsense, yeah. right? But it just, reveal, it just makes me think more about myself. Why yeah. do I think that's bollocks? Yeah. But, the, but then <laughs> I said, cigarette ends, pencils, wooden yeah. ball... 
that they're not magnetic. Oh, okay. She was moving plastic and cloth as well. So it applied to the metal stuff, if indeed the metal stuff used was magnetic as well. It's just an assumption. They never checked her bra or anything like that. But it is a likely case because I think she was one person as well that said, watch me. If you don't watch me, I'll cheat because it's easier. It's easier to, easier cheat, to cheat than it is to do this the way that I'm claiming that I'm doing it. So just watch everything I'm doing. From the videos that I've seen, it seems quite convincing if indeed they've checked her. And she's wearing shorts, short dress as well. So you can see her knees. It's not like we've fooled people before when we're kind of telling students about these techniques and we've strapped magnets to our knees. So underneath the table, we're moving our knee and doing a clever hand action on the top um, to make she it seem like we're moving. To help you. Exactly. Well, you I need to pa- need to paint did. a hand on my palm to protect yeah, me. You can tell you what she did. And then <laughs> I do that. Just on uh, outside the canteen, I'll just seal myself in ice for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bury myself. See who comes to watch. Um, she's the lady that they base the men who stare at goats on, in a way, because she'd done some studies that got reported in the Journal of Paraphysics, where um, she got a load of, like they used to do in the American biology labs, where they had living frogs pinned down, and they'd do a dissection. She was waving her hands over them to try and influence their heart rates, and with a couple of them, she'd stopped their heart. Mm-hmm. And the cardiograph that was linked to the frog suggested that some small electrical impulse had gone from somewhere, seemingly her hand, into the frog's heart and killed it. So they were talking about this in terms of extending it further for warfare. If people can consciously control these abilities to influence people or the environment around them by willing it and trying to force some sort of signal, can you do this to actually kill people? So you're sat in an office in one country trying to think about the leader of some opposing army in the office somewhere else, and you're trying to give him a heart attack. And uh, So this is where the men at stare at goats like, came from. That's like the, the magic touch, the touch of death. <laughs> the, and they're like the fake martial artists. Yeah. And they always have these, they always get kicked in the head. When they have the fight with like a, a real martial artist, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course it doesn't. It's makes me think of the one-inch punches. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you have this magic death touch, but someone who doesn't believe in it will just punch you in the face. Mm. But your students, and that's it's quite interesting actually, like the power of belief. Whether these students are faking it or the fact that they believe their master so much, mm. they actually are sort of disabled by these magic touches. But when they fight some a skeptic who's trained, they get the shit beaten out of them it, every time. It leads to that debate that some of the students have felt. Um, really struggled with the other day when we were just talking in positive psychology about the power of positive thinking. Yeah. And that this also relates to the placebo and nocebo effect as well. And that if you believe that by doing this or thinking this, there's this kind of outcome, then you're willing it in many ways from your mind acting on the body. Mm. Um, I think Dr. Leo Rookaby was talking about some anthropological study. It's some culture where they had this kind of shamanic tradition of giving people the bone. And you'd literally, there was this bone that symbolized death. And if someone handed it to someone else, the reports were that they'd take the bone and they'd just curl up on the floor there and then and die. That's like curses, right? They yeah. They only work if you know you've been cursed. But th- there's a massive nocebo effect. They think, oh my God, I've been given this and that has, you know, there's cause and effect here. And they've believed it so much that their immune system breaks down or whatever. And and so you could have the same effect with this willpower thing, because I gave an example of Alex Tanis allegedly healing someone. But when you read the transcript, that's not how it comes across at all. Some students saw it, others didn't. And there's a lady that was undergoing chemotherapy. She'd had a mastectomy, and um, she wasn't sure of the outcome, but she got a, another appointment coming up Thursday, and he met her on the Saturday, and she knew about his alleged abilities to heal people. She said she shook his hand, felt some sort of energy go from him to her. And a lot of people said he'd got a very kind of positive personality he just oozed this kind of 
pleasantness to be around him. Yeah. So to, I think, shake his hand and have direct eye contact with him, he got very dark, intimidating, with nice eyes. People just loved it, and they, they felt this kind of... But you get that as a personality type in yeah. some people where they, they've just got this affection, affectionate um, positivity. Dr. Graham Mitchell used to have that as a, a positive psychologist, and I feel the same with Piers Worth, who's at um, Bucks New University, who's a positive psychologist, when they've kind of read about positivity so much, they seem to ooze it. Yeah. And so Alex had that, and she said that when she shook his hand, she felt something go across, and he said, I don't think you've got cancer anymore. Um, it's gone away. And she went for a checkup on Thursday, and lo and behold, the, the chemo treatment seemed to work. There was no cancer. She believed that she'd received a healing from him. But it's just this positive thought that it's gone now. You know? And part of that is trust the chemo and believe that it's gone. Yeah. So part of that could be the willpower that I've been told it's gone, I've been having the chemo, it has gone. And thinking positively through to that next appointment as well, mm. rather than thinking, oh, I've got cancer and my hair's fallen out because of the chemo and stuff, what's the point? Well, even if you think that it's not the positive thought, that it, the chemo actually works because that's why they do it, mm -hmm. it made her feel good. Exactly. Which is important. Mm. So if the chemo worked, great, but also let's make her feel good too. And Th those correlations yeah. have been about for a long time, even since the 80s, of finding that people in high-stress jobs, when they develop cancer, if they do develop it, seem to have high-level cancer as well. If you're going through a lot of stress and anxiety in your life, it does worsen your health conditions, whatever health conditions come up. If you're thinking positively, you seem to get over them quite a lot. Since I've been engaged in positive psychology and developing more and more of an optimistic outlook, I don't get frustrated so much anymore by these Wikipedia annoyances and ignorant views and stuff without people reading up on the stuff. Um, I, I rarely ever get a cold. I don't remember the last time I was actually poorly. Uh, and if I do get poorly or something like that, I seem to laugh it off and, you know, take something medicinal like some whiskey or something like that and say, well, that'll sort it. And I tell myself that'll sort it. It's medicinal. And I, I tend to have nothing for no more than 12 hours. <coughs> Is that just because then you, you've lowered your cortisol levels, your stress, your stress levels? I, I still get stressed. Because you, you, but feel, I, I, you deal I, with it differently. Yeah, I, I try to turn to what are the positives here. And I, I kind of stop and assess the situation rather than drive it through and say, oh, I'm stressed and what am I going to do? It's kind of a, a stop, separate it, be objective, lay it out mentally in front of you, think about it, now move forward. Uh, and that seems to help. That's what's in a lot of the like uh, successful sort of entrepreneurship books, right? To, <laughs> to make a list of, the, of what you want and, and do it like a dream board. Yeah, it's funny because uh, Alan Partridge mentioned that in his stand-up when he was saying they got a new uh, revolutionary business idea and he said he came up for it when he was in something like John Lewis and he accidentally shit himself <laughs> and he was going through a low point in his life and he said but what I did was you know I did something that I now apply to business I stopped assessed the situation and took small steps in the right direction <laughs> and, and you should apply that to everything yeah <laughs> but that's the power of, of sort of uh, wishing it into reality right fake yes. it till you make it I mean yes. don't, don't shit yourself <laughs> pretend as though you haven't shit but if yourself. you do stop assess the situation and take small steps in the yeah, right direction pretend you haven't shit yourself but deal with the fact that you've shit yourself mm -hmm. and, and mentally mentally <laughs> and work your way through that, that's the thing it's hard in a department and some people say well it's all very well to talk about that theoretically no if, if you give yourself the chance mentally to shut off for a minute and, and it's like when people are arguing in a, a board meeting someone just says just shut up for a minute can everyone just stop and it's like just getting everyone to stop Focus, listen for a minute, because you're all bickering and you're creating the stress. Now, let's just listen. Time's not against us. In this next minute, I just want you to listen. And you can do that to yourself as well. Stop, assess the situation. And what am I going to do next? Most of the bickering comes from 
external stuff anyway. He's going to name drop now. No, People no. People in the department. <laughs> some external stuff anyway, because, I mean, the idea of, and one of the ideas of positive psychology is that, you know, someone can't make you angry. Yeah. You make you angry. You can choose to react in however way you, you want to. That's that synthetic happiness thing, right? You can mm. choose to, to look on the bright side of whatever. You can choose to act however you want to act and to take things the way they're taken. So something might make you a bit annoyed, mm. but it's not made you annoyed. Yeah. It's you can uh, choose to accept that your car's broken or someone's pulled out and cut you off or whatever. You can choose to be like, okay, someone's cut me off, and maybe even have the perspective to think mm. they've had a shit day. I think it also has to be understood. Maybe baby's uh, being born. They're in a rush. I cut a shitload of people off. I was bombing down there yeah. when my son was being born. So you know, it has to be understood within this so that this isn't sweeping anxiety disorders or depression under the carpet. Because even though people might develop synthetic happiness over the top of that, ultimately it doesn't help. I mean, it, it might help to cope, but it, it doesn't make depression or anxiety any better if someone's no. putting on a false smile as well. And, and that, that's, that's the taken, dangerous thing. That's taking an argument to an extreme. Mm-hmm. There's too much of that in pretty much everything, but especially politics. Yeah. So you take something too far one side. So synthetic happiness is a thing, or therefore you can just choose not to be depressed. It doesn't quite work that way. Depression is a thing. Yeah. It's real. Uh, anxiety, again, is a thing. It's real. Y- you can't take everything to its logical conclusion all the way every single time yeah because it's it's silly to do that it doesn't make any sense mm. you see that a lot with the the politics of the left eating themselves they eat their own you can't be progressive enough mm. the right doesn't have that issue because you, you can be too right you can be super racist bigot sexist mm-hmm. arsehole right you can be that there's no left version you can't possibly be progressive enough and inclusive enough Mm. So that person doesn't exist. Mm. So the left eats its own rather than whatever the Ricky Gervais thing is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Terrible for audio, but that's the best one. Yeah, some sort of finger action there. <laughs> <laughs> Awful to listen to, that bit. <laughs> <laughs> a bit of finger action. Yeah, a bit of finger action. Yeah. No, I get it. <coughs> Absolutely. Well, what have we done? We've done one hour, 43 minutes. Uh, I, I think people would just be getting into it by that point. <laughs> <laughs> you, are you, are you, do you have to go? or What time is it? Uh, I've probably got to go and prepare for um, two hours on sex and society. I think You've got that at two? Uh, I've got it at three. But if there's another thing you want to ask before the end, we can always come back for another one. But if there's oh, so- absolutely. If there's something else pressing that you thought... Do you um, have anything to plug, shamelessly? Something you want people to go and spend their hard-earned cash on? Uh, well... You can do. I mean, for one, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, you can go to at Callum E. Cooper um, and find me on Twitter. Or if you're interested in any of the books that I've written and more in the pipeline at the moment, which is slowing me down with a lot of other projects, you can go on Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com. And if you type in Callum E. Cooper, when you look at books, you'll find my books on there. And the books that I have got out at the moment are Telephone Calls from the Dead, Conversations with Ghosts, um, which I ghost edited for Alex Tanis, and Paracoustics, which I co-edited with Steve Parsons as well. Do you still say ghost edited when it's about ghosts? Yeah, <laughs> I, I prefer the term ghost editor because you, you you have done a lot of the work, but you've not taken credit for it. And I had a ghost editor for Telephone Course from the Dead who did a lot of the proofreading yeah. and is responsible for a lot of the restructure of the book. I like that term because they're there, they are responsible, but no one knows about them. Yeah. to a large extent so it's like you take all the credit yeah <laughs> I think I named him in well, the I mean, in the acknowledgements <laughs> but I still called him the ghost editor even though I gave him a name yeah so he was in there. 
But yeah, that's all I can plug really. Um, well, next time you, you the book you're working on, when you've got some. If well, there's a few. You I mean, plug, you're, you're welcome anytime. There's, thank you very much. There's um, Science Psychotherapy that's coming out soon, which is another one of Alex Tannis's books. Um, and, and then I'm working on one with David Saunders about Dreams of the Dead. Um, we could always come in and jointly talk about that stuff. Um, and then and next year, Steve Parsons is very keen to get Paravision off the ground. Um, but there are a few other books in the pipeline with that. We haven't even talked about my main research on bereavement I experiences I mean, as well. So, you're so yeah. easy to talk to. This could have gone on for another two hours. Death, dying, and bereavement and anomalous experiences during that time and why we even have them, you know, what health benefits do they have. And that goes in another route. We, we've talked about the kind of bigoted views that get put towards parapsychology. I've seen it very difficult for people to put parapsychology down when it goes the other route and it looks at clinical aspects, so it's looking at clinical parapsychology. If you're saying this is the ha- health outcome, yeah. people don't then say, well, they weren't seeing a bloody apparition, that's a load of nonsense. They realise that, well, I can't poo-poo this because here's the positive health. outcomes. Why would I take that experience away from them only to make them ill or to continue with the illness they've got? That's interesting because that would conflict with their very it's aims. a good it's a good line of defense and i guess opens up people more to why these experiences are important to people while we're also on the other branch trying to figure out what those experiences are we've got two distinct directions three technically you, you could have parapsychology that says here's the conventional explanations but they don't apply in this particular one case so it's something new going on clinical parapsychology will say here's the impact it has on someone what are the health outcomes and then anomalistic psychology that says we have got different paradigms we can apply we have got conventional explanations but this is what seemingly looks like paranormal phenomena and this is how we seem to be able to explain it and the skeptical view may be it's a hallucinogenic defense mechanism Uh, it could be um, in some cases I mean some of them are very obvious when someone goes home and they've lost someone and they sense that presence that person's expected to be around in that environment so it's very natural especially because their items are there their smell is still if in the home if it makes them feel better it may be produced by the brain it Ab- might be hallucinations absolutely we need that coping mechanism the brain does not want the body to be ill or to the mind to think on negative thoughts so it will try and get you into a positive place or a content place as quickly as it can that's it, why qualitative is important then. exactly to understand these experiences and then you can once you understand understand how these experiences work and you've got set categories then you can start to quantify it a bit more and then you can start mix and matching the data Um, but then these experiences as I'll speak about next time go one step Mm. further when someone has suffered a bereavement and other people come over to the house let's say and several people see the apparition not just the bereaved but people who aren't involved or veridical information comes forward that's when a bereavement experience cannot be blamed away or explained away via the bereavement process itself and anyway, just because someone is in a state of grief is not a good reason to hallucinate. There's no cause and effect there. There has to be a reason behind the hallucination in the first place. Yeah, so Even if, if it's just expectancy. Expectancy could uh, explain that, but can expectancy explain a full-blown apparition? You'd have to work out the chance of hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And look at look at other forms of separation anxiety as well. So that someone um, has lost their favourite car that they spent ages saving up for to buy and someone smashes it up and that's it, it's a complete write-off. Do you start then hallucinating your car on the driveway when it's not actually there? Yeah, if you have the same feeling of loss. People have attachment for all kinds of things. Animals, items, um, you you cry at weddings when your children go... You have to be a sociopath though to have more of an attachment to cars than you could possibly have to like your mother or... But um, you know, it is important when it comes to humans, but some people have mega attachments when it comes to inanimate objects. Your favourite childhood teddy bear. Some people won't give up their childhood blanket or teddy bear. And it causes a lot of emotional distress for some people to actually finally give it up or throw it in the bin or pass it on to someone else. It's a, it's a big mental thing to let go of. Yeah. 
And, you know, people get that with their cats and dogs as well, where they love them just as much as humans. And you have those experiences. The cat dies and you start seeing it out the corner of your eye on the counter. Yeah, I was going to say, is there like a, is there a pet version of... Heaven. <laughs> no, 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 like a pet version of... Pet version of experiences. Yeah, uh, loads. Uh, I mean, there's even apparitions of inanimate objects, horse carriages. If you see that famous headless horseman with a carriage, why is the carriage there? Right. Why, why is it some people step into a room and see a table with people sat at it and they look back again, no one's there, nor is the table? Why was the table part of it? Why was the ghost wearing clothes? That's very odd because then it. But surely, if if that's if they're a real thing, then objects have to have some kind of consciousness. Or the environment's recording them somehow, and we're playing it back. Okay, yeah. Especially if they don't have conscious awareness, because then, so then it just seems to be that you're picking up in a retrocognitive sense. You're predicting a past event and having some, this is the way the information is coming to you. It's not as a mental thought. It's a hallucinogenic projection. Yeah, so a memory is a thing, or you are able to project the entire thing based mm-hmm. on just not... And exper- experience like. the memory rather than interpret the memory internally. If that makes sense. Yeah, to see to see your memory. Mm. And, and like Winsper's lucid, coming in to talk about memory. this in a sense next Thursday when she talks about time slip phenomena and people have stepped into these scenarios of something that happened a long time ago. Or is it daydreaming? Yeah, um, but they've interacted with the environment, and you know, in some extreme cases, they've gone into shops that haven't been there for fifty or sixty years and come out. And when they oh, look, well, look back down the street, it's not there anymore. Oh, that's weird. No, I think I've heard a story. That, uh, it might have been you that was telling me actually about that. Yeah. About going into a shop and then coming like telling their wife, I've just been in this old timey shop. Uh, yeah, yeah. And you come back. Someone had allegedly the next day and it's not there anymore. Yeah, there, there were some wacky cases I think Anne mentioned where people had picked stuff up. You know, they went back to it and turned to ash. Oh, that's weird. Or they hadn't got it anymore. They couldn't find it. They're, yeah. they're very. They're the trippy things. They're the most extreme scale where you think, where's the conventional explanations? Where do we start? I kind of would like to to have that experience mm-hmm. because, like I like I said, I I would incline to say, didn't happen. Right, or it's a hallucinogenic mm. thing that you hallucinate it. But if I had that experience, I would either have to admit my insanity mm-hmm. that I am imagining all these things happening to me, or there is something else. I'd have to question that, that my skepticism is correct. It's not on the basis of one. This to be localized like a haunting. There's one particular street in Liverpool where I think it's over a dozen people have walked down that same street, different occasions, different times, and they've all had the same experience, reported it even though they've had no interaction with each other, and they're reported in the same way. It was only halfway down the street they started to realise things weren't the same, cars weren't about anymore, people were wearing different things, people were looking at them funny. And when they got to the end of the street and looked back, it was the same as it was. What I said to Anne last time she spoke about this, I said, it'd be interesting because we've got CCTV everywhere now in public places. Is there any CCTV on that street to actually yeah. monitor the point that they walked onto the street and walked to the end? What's actually going on from the camera's point of view? I'd imagine the camera would pick up nothing, which would incline you to say that it's all in their head. So it'd be interesting to see their behaviour, a reaction to this as they walk down the street, as the street is as we perceive it, but they're still um, stepping into something different psychologically and interacting with something that we're not objectively perceiving, nor is the camera, obviously. It's Uh, so complicated, actually. If you think about it like that and you start breaking it down to, you know, is it just a crossed wire? Mm. Is this literally a thing that you're just seeing? Well, next time I'm on, I'll talk about a really interesting case that overlapped with that called the vertical plane that happened in a cottage. I've forgotten whether it was Essex or Sussex, but I'll, I'll come back and talk about that. And that was a long case that went on for ages. The SBR tried to investigate it and explain it, and they couldn't. 
and all the files still exist now and no one's been able to analyse or get to the bottom of it. I wonder what Wikipedia would say about that. It's nonsense. <laughs> Fictional book made up. <laughs> Didn't happen. Well, thank you for coming on. <coughs> thank you very much for having Keep me. Coughing. That was really cool. And yeah, you're welcome anytime. Thank Especially you. Especially if you have something to promote. <laughs> and we can help you get I'll make out. some soap or candles or something <laughs> next time that I can vlog I'll bring them on yeah that's cool thank you for coming and um, if we have guests that you want to get on and you can do so and you come on with them okay. that would be cool as well I'll just get another mic. yeah so that, well we could do a whole session on positive psychology I mean, Drew said we can fit five in here so uh, yeah exactly so, <laughs> so. He did, Drew, Drew did alert us at the start of this show that um, yeah th there was more capacity than what we were using he knew by just knew. shaking the door yeah. Was, uh, he was looking into the future. He knew that this conversation would happen. Or through the door with his x-ray eyes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.